welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 50, where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book or a bunch of comic books from <laughs> the yesteryear of publishing. Uh, you can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and from a giant mechanical yellow tower. Huh. Whoa. This is it, Chris. We made it to episode 50. Consecutive episodes, uh, and this isn't even all of them, really, because we did have a handful that we started on Weird Science, right? That, that sure that preceded this numbering. But uh, yeah, this is this is quite a a monumental moment for us, I guess. And uh, we wanted to really do something special about someone else's 50th anniversary. DC yes. Comics in 1985 had their official 50th anniversary. And they put out a 12-issue series that some people might know called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, this lasted from April 1985 to March 1986, written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by George Perez, inked by Dick Giordano, Jerry Ordway, and Mike DiCarlo, and colored by Anthony Tolan, Tom Ziuko, Carl Gafford, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Sort of a... Uh, the bread to the uh, creative sandwich here. Mm-hmm. Uh, cover price was seventy-five cents. Now this is a massive. Uh, just the work itself is tremendous. You know, Absolutely. If we just went did the comics, this would be a huge uh, episode or multi-part episode. But as mm-hmm. it is, we always do, we try to present the most complete picture of the crisis, why it happened, the things leading up to it, the you know editorial scene at the time, as well as go through the comics. So this is going to be a three-part episode going on to episode 51 and 52. So far. So far. <laughs> we, we, it, it may uh, bump out a little bit, but it seems like we're pretty sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, today we are really going to concentrate primarily on the things that caused the multiverse and why this 12-part series had to come out. And we're going to do our lend our talents to issue number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we will come back next week to do another batch of issues. But first, of course, we want to talk about the folks involved in the book, don't we, Chris? Absolutely. And some of our loyal listeners, will uh, this will be old hat to them because yeah. uh, we're going to talk about Marv Wolfman again. This is uh, Marv and Arthur Wolfman, born May 13th, 1946 in Brooklyn, New York. He attended the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. That's where he let he met uh, Len Wein and other comic aficionados. Uh, back in the day, DC Comics used to give office tours every week. Mm-hmm. And so in the late 60s, Marvin Len would show up every week. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, they ingratiated themselves enough to uh, be given some gigs here and there. Uh, Wolfman's first published work for DC appeared in Blackhawk, uh, number 242. This is the August-September 1968 issue, and the story was titled my brother, my enemy, and uh, that, he actually shares co-writing credit with our old friend Bob Haney. There, Neil Adams was called upon to rewrite and redraw a Teen Titans story. It was called Titans Fit the Battle of Jericho, which had been written by Ween and Wolfman. Uh, the story had initially been okayed by editor Dick Giordano and then publisher of DC Comics Erwin Donenfeld, but incoming publisher Carmine Infantino killed it after it had been penciled, inked. And lettered. Yeah. <laughs> the revised story would appear in Teen Titans number 20. This is March, April 1969. And uh, in it, Neil Adams gets writing and art credit. Yeah, and I know you can see at least some of those original pages online. I've seen them. Uh, yeah, they're floating. The ones that are finished. It's not really 
too fascinating, but if you dig into it, you can find out why this story was changed, but we've talked about it in other episodes, we're not going to delve into it right now. In 1970, the Comics Code Authority was tested by Marv Wolfman's name in uh, House of Secrets number, number 83 in January 1970 cover date. The intro page, written by Jerry Conway, makes reference to a story told to me by a wandering wolfman. The following story is the stuff that dreams are made of by Marv Wolfman, art by Alex Toth. Uh, this sort of pushed the boundaries of the comics code where they said you couldn't mention Wolfman and this, that changed uh, the following year in 71 where now you could talk about Wolfman, vampires, mummies and such. And this also led to writers being credited in mystery mags and after that even all comics uh, mm -hmm. to this day, I believe. I can't think of one where they don't do it. No. In 1972, Roy Thomas brought Marvel Wolfman and Len Wein over to Marvel. Almost immediately, Roy Thomas stepped down as Marvel's editor-in-chief to concentrate on writing. A couple of years later, Marv was hired as editor-in-chief <laughs> for the black and white magazines and four colors at Marvel. He lasted about a year, then he quit. Seems like he was kind of encouraged to, uh, you know, make himself scarce, and he was replaced by Jerry Conway. During his time in Marvel, Wolfman wrote a lengthy runs of Amazing Spider-Man, where he co-created the Black Cat with Keith Pollard, uh, Fantastic Four, and Doctor Strange. Probably best known for this period for crafting with Gene Cullen, the horror title Tomb of Dracula, which ran for 70 issues from April 72 to August 1979, though he didn't begin scripting it until issue number seven. I believe he co-created the character. Though, right? he, he created Blade. Oh, okay. That that's yeah. the part that he created, and uh, yeah, he's he's pretty much associated closely with that title, even though Absolutely. he showed up in issue seven. Now, in 1980, Wolfman would return to DC after a dispute with new Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. Uh, he offered to renew Wolfman's contract as a writer, but wasn't so keen on doing the whole writer-editor thing. Uh, with penciler George Perez, Marv relaunched DC's Teen Titans in a special pre special preview in DC Comics Presents number 26, cover date October 1980. In it, they uh, co-created the characters Cyborg, Starfire, and Raven, and added them to the existing crew of Robin, Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, and Beast Boy, who was now going by the name Changeling. You know, sometimes uh, our old friend uh, Speedy, Roy yeah, Harper, would hang out, too. That's right. <laughs> they would have a, a formal debut with New Teen Titans number 1, cover date November 1980, which was, uh, as it happens, edited by Len Wein. That's right. <laughs> Seems like the guy that was probably a conjoined twin with Marv at one point. Yes. The way they got so closely worked together. Absolutely. Now, uh, New Teen Titans was pretty much a smash hit right out the gate. Um, outsold everything else at DC and, and finally coming into, rage, into range of uh, Marvel's dominant market share. Now, this would uh, give Marv the cachet to write the multiverse-shaping event that we're going to be discussing today. That's right. And who else is, could draw it but his uh, partner in Teen Titans, but George Perez, born June 9, 1954, in the South Bronx, New York City. In 1973, George broke into the industry as an assistant to Rich Buckler, who was drawing Fantastic Four at the time. George Perez's first credit was in Marvel's Astonishing Tales number 25. That was August 74. Cover date as a penciler of an untitled two-page satire of Buckler's character, Deathlock. This began a long and celebrated run on the Avengers with issue number 141, November 1975, all the way to 200 in December 1980. That's Perez, a hell of a run. I know. I, that's, you know and what's funny is people, I would say, still, they would associate him more with Teen Titans. 
Uh, sure. Which is not wrong in a long and celebrated run on that, too, <laughs> but he got the Teen Titans off of the Avengers, really. Certainly. Uh, Perez illustrated several other Marvel titles, including Creatures on the Loose, featuring the Man-Wolf, the Inhumans, and uh, Fantastic Four. George would pair with Marv Wolfman for the first time on Fantastic Four Annual number 13 that had a December 1979 cover date. In 1980, while still drawing the Avengers from Marvel, Perez began working for their rival, DC Comics. He began drawing the new Teen Titans with that first appearance we just mentioned in DC Comics Presents number 26. Uh, he actually took the job drawing new Teen Titans because of the promise to eventually draw Justice League of America, which he felt was the natural progression from drawing Marvel's Avengers, which he, uh, which he did, yep. beginning with issue uh, 184. This is November 1980. In Action Comics number 544, June 1983, he designed Lex Luthor's trademark, uh, that big green battle suit. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this was used uh, for the Superpowers toy line by Kenner and is still in use today. Sort of, in a way, uh, but yeah. yeah, close enough. <laughs> Definitely a, a, you know, taken from it. Certainly. Now, uh, Perez took a leave of absence from New Teen Titans in 1984 to focus on his next project with Marv Wolfman. And, hey, would you look at that? <laughs> it's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Wow, the very thing we're talking about today seems to all worked out well uh, in that mm -hmm. story. Now we're going to tackle maybe the most difficult topic we've ever tackled on this podcast, Chris, and that's to explain how the DC multiverse was made. And to do that, we have to pretty much go back to the beginning of comics. Uh, we're going to go to the Golden Age. Uh, this is, you know, back when they were still national publications and they were cranking them out for, uh, you know, patriotic war titles and whatever and some uh, guys flying around in capes. And so there was a title, the original concept for a title, the All-Star Comics, this was an anthology title containing the most popular series from the other anthology titles published by both All-American Publications, which was owned by Max Gaines, and National Comics, which was owned by Harry Donenfeld. Uh, All-American would later sell them sell to national periodicals, which is why DC owns all of these characters. So, uh, yeah, it debuted with All-Star Comics number in summer 1940, February to March 1951, and this featured superhero stories that included All-Americans Flash, Hawkman, Ultraman, as well as Nationals Hourman, Spectre, and Sandman. All those guys had, they were in their, they had their own stories in other titles, but those mm -hmm. titles were also often, or always, anthology. anthology titles themselves, so... This is how complex it really gets, you know, to be... Yeah, a lot of eight-pagers here. Exactly, uh, yeah, and people just, just churning them out. Uh, the adventure strip Biff Bronson and the comedy adventure Red, White, and Blue also premiered with this issue. Never heard of them again, but that's all right. No. <laughs> now, in All-Star Comics number three, the Justice Society of America was introduced, and individual character stories were loosely connected by some framing pages at the front and the back of each comic. Uh, now, Dr. Fate from National's More Fun Comics and the Green Lantern and the Atom from All-American's flagship title, All-American Comics, joined the team. All-Star Comics number eight, this is January 1942, featured the first appearance of Wonder Woman in an eight-page story written by William Moulton Marston under the pen name Charles Charles Moulton, and it featured art by H.G. Peter. The same issue did not de debut these characters, but saw the introduction of Dr. Midnight and Starman as members of the Justice Society as well. Starting with issue number 11, Wonder Woman would appear in All-Star Comics as a member of the Justice Society. 
as their secretary. Well, Times were different. Well, that's how they did it back in those days. Uh, there was always her own comic if you want to see her sure. doing the right thing. Now, over time, these Golden Age versions of characters like Jay Garrick, Flash, and the Alan Scott Green Lantern, they would also join the team. Uh, these were the biggest characters of their time. The anthology format was dropped in 1947 and replaced with full-issue stories re- featuring the heroes teaming up to fight crime. Uh, All-Star Comics increased its frequency from quarterly to bi-monthly pub- publication schedule, and the JSA lasted through March 1951 with issue number 57 in a story titled The Mystery of the Vanishing Detectives. This was really because superhero comics slumped in the early 1950s, and All-Star Comics it was renamed All-Star Western in 1951, which is issue number 58. Artwork from an unpublished All-Star Comics story titled The Will of William Wilson survived, and it has been reprinted in various publications from Tomorrow's Publishing. I haven't seen it. Have you, Chris? I'd no, I have not. I'd like to take a look at that, but yeah, it's, it's out there. Yeah, isn't I think the story was uh, All Star Comics was the first comic that Roy Thomas had subscribed to, and like in the second issue he got, it was All Star Western. Yeah, you go. So. I, I, I have heard that. That's right. Again, yeah. It was like canceled immediately. <laughs> now we did the, the Golden Age. Let's hop into the Silver Age here. By the fifties, only three heroes—Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman—were still published under their own titles. Though uh, Green Arrow was featured as a backup in Detective Comics, but yeah, you know, that's just splitting hairs. Uh, also, our good pal Aquaman uh, was featured in Adventure Comics for years. But uh, you know, and while we're on that subject, uh, in the mid <laughs> in the mid fifties, editor Julius Schwartz, writer Gardner Fox, and artist Carmine Infantino decided to resuscitate and redesign the Flash. Robert Kaniger wrote the new Flash's first few stories, though. So the Silver Age begins, technically, by many people's calendars, uh, with showcase number four. That was October 1956 cover date by by Robert Kaniger and Carvine Infantino. Though some have claimed it it was a debut of the Martian Manhunter. That was in a backup in Detective Comics 225, uh, November 1955 cover date by Joseph Samishun and Joe Serta. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary on that. Sure. With the the runaway success of Showcase Number Four, though, the other Golden Age characters were rebooted with the Silver Age treatment. So the Space Age Green Lantern this debuted in uh, this is Hal Jordan in Showcase Number Twenty Two, cover date October nineteen fifty nine by John Broom and Gil Kane. The Hawkman he changed from a reincarnated mu- museum curator into an interplanetary police officer. In the Brave and the Bold, number 34, that was February to March 1961, by Gardner Fox and Joe Kubert. The Atom was reimagined from, like, just a scrappy little dude to a shrinking scientist in showcase number 34, October 61, by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. And their outfits also changed. They went from often blousier... Like flamboyant. To flamboyant to, to like, just skin-tight... You know what we spandex would consider spandex yeah. uh, superhero outfits. So this that was really the change that brought to what we would call the look of the modern hero. Although maybe the modern hero has more armor. And, <laughs> These days. Uh, so the Justice Society of America would have a Silver Age we awakening as well as the Justice League of America, debuting in the Brave and the Bold number twenty-eight, March nineteen sixty, by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Yeah, so now we're going to discuss the Flash of Two Worlds. Yeah, this this, this is, is the thing that did it, folks. This, this is, is the, the <laughs> first domino. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, this is when the Silver Age met the Golden Age. This is Flash number 123, September 1961. As we said, The Flash of Two Worlds by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. While performing stunts for some children, Barry Allen vibrates himself out of Central City and into Keystone City, which is the home of the Golden Age Flash, also known as Jay Garrick. He learns that Garrick, a comic book character on his Earth, uh, Barry like was he was uh, inspired right. by uh, Jay Garrick he and, took his and name read the from comics. The comic that he yeah. read, yeah. So uh, he's an actual living person on this other <laughs> Earth. This is Earth Two, while Barry Allen is from Earth One. Uh, the two take out some uh, classic baddies and agree to eventually meet again. And thus, the multiverse is born. Wow. Uh, Jay wouldn't stay away long. He would return to guest star with his Earth-1 counterpart six issues later in Flash number 129. This is June 1962. And the next time he returned in Flash 19... I'm sorry, Flash number 137, June 1963, he didn't return alone. He brought some friends with him. Yeah, and you know, the, the Flash part of the multiverse has its own special relationship really it's almost like it's you know the flash families blending together yeah. and uh, that kind of sp- spins out into its own world but you know such an innocuous story that obviously was tremendously popular and that's the only reason they pursued sure. this but otherwise i think it was just kind of a julie schwartz derived gag to like hey let's yep. have these two heroes <laughs> meet each other but people really liked it a lot and so there were f- uh, further crossovers that went on and on and on uh, we're going to do the best we can to list as many as we can right here. <laughs> um, so they had them every summer for the next several years. These uh, two teams would meet, uh, Justice League and the Justice Society. In Justice League of America, number 21 to 22, August, September 1963, by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski, titled Crisis in Earth 1 in the first issue, and then Crisis in Earth 2 in the second issue, supervillains from both Earths team up to fight their respective alternative arch-enemies, if that makes sense to you. So, you know, (laughs) the the Fiddler from Earth 2 would fight the, I don't know, I guess the Flash, I forget who his analog would be from Earth 1. The JLA and JSA team up to take him out, and this is probably the first DC story to continue over consecutive issues, two issues. Uh, mm-hmm. The Fiddler reasons that if there's an Earth 2, there must be an Earth 3. And wouldn't you know it? In Justice League of America, is number 29 through 30. This is August through September 1964 by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Our heroes meet their evil counterparts, the crime syndicate of America, in Crisis on Earth 3. Uh, the second issue's t- story is titled The Most Dangerous Earth of All. Yeah, theoretically that would be Earth 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny no one asks into that. Hmm, I wonder if there's an Earth 4, but it isn't. <laughs> um, so Justice League of America, number 37 to 38. This was August, September 1965, cover dates by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. In Earth Without a Justice League, Earth 1 evil counterpart of Johnny Thunder uses Thunderbolt to go back in time and prevent the JLA from forming. And this creates another Earth, Earth A. <laughs> oh, boy, they had no idea what they wrought, did they? Mm-hmm. In, uh, in number 38, everything is set back to normal with the help of the JSA and Thunderbolt. And in the end, only Thunderbolt remembers what happened. The following summer in Justice League of America's number 46 through 47, August, September 1966, we've got Crisis Between Earth 1 and Earth 2 and A Bridge Between Earths by Fox and Sikowski. Uh, the careless travels of the mysterious antimatter man hmm, caused the heroes of Earth 1 and Earth's 1 and 2 to switch. 
then for their Earths to almost collide, then from the partially switch back on their to their respective Earths. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, the anti- that was a heck of a day. It wasn't even lunchtime yet. <laughs> nope. <laughs> the, the antimatter man is banished by the Spectre to his homeworld, Quard. Hmm. How about that? This information might be uh, important later on, folks. Perhaps. In Justice League of America number 55 to 56, that was August, September 67, cover dates, in the super crisis that struck Earth 2 and the negative crisis of Earth's 1-2 by Fox and Sikowski, criminals on Earth 1 and Earth 2 gain superpowers thanks to some mysterious black spheres. Only Johnny Thunder's jokes can defeat them for some reason. <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the end, this is some Silver Age stuff, folks. You gotta, you gotta take it like it comes. Uh, in the end, he leaves the JLA with a list of jokes in case this ever happens again. Oh, boy. You know, his jokes do make me want to jump off of something high. So <laughs> I, I, I haven't even read the issues, and I'm laughing right now, so that's, that's a good sign. <laughs> we have uh, Justice League of America, number 64 and 65. This is August, September 1968. We've got The Storm Return of the Red Tornado and T.O. Morrow kills the Justice League today. It was by Gardner Fox and Dick Dillon. This story pits the combined teams against uh, T.O. Morrow and serves to reintroduce the Golden Age concept of Red Tornado. Uh, instead of the crimson clad protector of the streets wearing a pot on her head, that's Ma Hunkle, the original Red Tornado, the character gets a suitable sci fi Silver Age reimagining as the um, more familiar to many, uh, you know, the red android with the arrow on his head. Right. Uh, yeah, there's no other way to put it. Uh, I couldn't be more different from the Ma Hunkle version, which I've always Absolutely. That's another another character entirely. Justice League of America number 73 to 74. That was August, September 1969. Cover dates in uh, Starlight, Star Bright, Death Star I See Tonight, and Where Death Fears to Tread by Denny O'Neill and Dick Dillon. Uh, this is notable for a defection from Earth 2 to Earth 1. After her husband Larry Lance sacrifices himself, Black Canary realizes there's nothing left for her on Earth 2. And so she leaves. She would eventually meet Earth One's Larry. Uh, however, he was a criminal there. Black Canary will kind of get sorted out with the story we're going to discuss eventually today and over the next few issues. But yeah, yes. she was sort of an anomaly for a long time in the mm-hmm. Earth One universe. Absolutely. Uh, we've got Justice League of America's number 82 to 83, August, September 1970. We've got The Peril of the Paired Planets and Where Valor Fails Will Magic Triumph by Denny O'Neill and Dick Dillon. Being known as Collector 2 or maybe Collector Squared, <laughs> he attempts to merge Earth 1 and Earth 2 into a single universe using the Red Tornado as a pawn, and he's unsuccessful. Yeah, uh, they have to try that again later on. Maybe. In Justice League of America number 91 to 92, that was August, September 1971, in Earth, The Monster Maker, and Solomon Grundy, The One and Only, by Mike Friedrich and Dick Dillon. An alien named A-Rim and his pet Tepi wind up jumping dimensions and run afoul of Earth 2's Solomon Grundy. Robin of Earth 1 suffers an injury and has his costume destroyed and wears that of his Earth 2 counterpart, and it's a doozy. It's a, it's a, it's a, a much more sillier crossover. Yeah, I, this, I, this is what I have seen, and it is ridiculous. It's like a it's like a mashup of of Batman and Robin's yeah. costume. It's so weird. Uh, we have a uh, Justice League of America number one hundred to one hundred two. This is August through October nineteen seventy two. We have the Unknown Soldier of Victory. 
The Hand That Shook the World, and And One of Us Must Die. It was written by Len Wein with art by Dick Dillon. The Justice League celebrates their 100th meeting by inviting a whole bunch of superheroes over for a gala. Among those guests are Earth 2's Justice Society of America. Together they must face the threat of Oracle. Uh, Not that Oracle. All right. <laughs> and learn that their hope lies in the hands of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. That's right. And if you're thinking the Morrison, not that Seven Soldiers nope. either. <laughs> uh, Justice League of America, number 107 to 108. That was October, November 1973 in Crisis on Earth X and 13 Against the Earth by Len Wein and Dick Dillon. The League and Society head into Earth X to aid the Freedom Fighters in their war against Hitler. Now, Earth X is a parallel world in which the Axis powers won World War II. This is that's this is that Earth's first appearance as part of the DC multiverse, as well as the first canonical DC appearances of the quality comics characters Black Condor, Doll Man, Human Bomb, Phantom Lady, The Ray, and of course, Uncle Sam, one of our favorites. Plastic Man is revealed to have been killed, but don't worry, that was just the Earth 2 version. We get another Plastic Man later on. And then Justice League of America number 113, October 1974, in The Creature in the Velvet Cage by Len Wein and Dick Dillon. The teams hang out, and Sandman shares the story of why he returned to his original Mystery Man costume. Because the other one looked silly. Uh, he accidentally <laughs> transformed his partner Sandy into a monster. He got better, though. Yeah. Now, eventually, these uh, team-ups would lead to a revival of the Justice Society of America. In uh, 1976, the name All-Star Comics was, the title All-Star Comics was resurrected for a series portraying the modern-day adventures of the JSA. Uh, the new series dismissed the numbering of All-Star Western and continued from the original numbering of All-Star Comics, premiering with All-Star Comics number 58. This would be the January-February 76 issue by Jerry Conway and Rick Estrada. You know, you, would run... you think Roy Thomas maybe just tried to, like, Get his collection back in numerical <laughs> order. He was just. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, he. I think he probably kept those westerns too. So his head probably popped. I really. He didn't know where to put it. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Parallels of collecting comics, everyone. It's it's a scary scene. Uh, now, this this revival would run for seventy uh, for seventeen issues until issue seventy four, October nineteen seventy eight. Uh, starting with issue number sixty six, a hyphen was added to the title, and the words "All Star Comics" became a smaller part of the cover, while the words uh, "Justice Society" became much larger. Uh, the 1970 series introduced the new characters Power Girl and Hel- the Helena Wayne version of the Huntress. Uh, this relaunch sort of rolls out of uh, probably the the final JLA JSE team up before you know the relaunch of the Justice Society. And yeah. uh, you'll tell us about that right now. I'll begin into that issues 123 <laughs> and 124. That was October November 1975. Uh, Where on Earth Am I? And Avenging Ghosts of Justice Society. Feature writers Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magan taking a ride on the actual cosmic treadmill and winding up in the co- on the comics themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bates arrives on Earth 2 and is granted powers by the villainous wizard. Magan heads to Earth 1 to enlist the aid of the Justice League. The Justice League heads to Earth 2 and fights a cast of characters they believe to be the Injustice Society but are in actuality the JSA. And the JSA, quote-unquote, die. At the conclusion of the story, the JSA gets better, and DC advertises the Super Squad. All-Star Comics number 58 was subtitled the Super Squad, which was the name reserved for the team of younger characters whose core includes Power Girl, and this, this issue is her first appearance, the Earth 2 Robin, and Star Spangled Kid. That will become important in a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, this title was canceled during the DC implosion, like so many others. 
JSA's final adventures were folded into the Adventure Comics anthology just for a little while, I think, to kind of run out whatever loose threads that they thought they had. Sure. And that doesn't mark the end of the JSA-JLA team-ups, but uh, we'll get to those another time. Yeah. Uh, let's discuss some All-Star Squadron. After 23-year-old Jerry Conway became an editor at DC Comics in 1975, longtime JSA fan Roy Thomas suggested to Conway that the JSA be given their own title again. Later, Conway offered Thomas a chance to ghostwrite an issue of the revived All-Star Comics, but he would decline because he was under an exclusive contract with Marvel Comics at the time, and uh, he seems to uh, to be an honorable fella. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, however, in 1981, Thomas moved to DC and was able to work with uh, with those characters he loved so much. Yeah, he did it right away, so you could tell he was chomping at the bit for this opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, the All Star Squadron de- debuted in a special insert in Justice League of America number 193, August 1981 cover date. Debuted in their own title the following month, All Star Squadron number one, September 1981, by Thomas Buckler and Ordway. Uh, the comic book series was published for 67 issues from December 19, September 1981 to March 1987, plus three annuals. Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway co-created the Infinity Inc. team in issue number 25, September 1983. I remember thinking it was funny because uh, Jerry Ordway's credit would, uh, would read Jeremiah Ordway. For oh, the yeah. early issues of oh, All-Star wow. Squadron. It always, it always uh, set me aback there. Uh, <laughs> Infinity Inc. Uh, now, this team was mostly comprised of the children, godchildren, and heirs of the Justice Society of America, plus some heroes that were denied entry into the JSA for whatever reason. It's kind of uh, like if, you know, what Teen Titans is to Justice League, mm-hmm. Infinity Inc. would be to Justice Society, more or less. Yeah. Uh, they would get their own title, which was all written by Roy and Dan Thomas, his wife, um, that ran for 53 issues between March 1984 and June 1988. Yeah, so that what we've done here is we've tried to set the stage of the how the you know there was one set of Golden Age heroes and Silver Age here, another set that were blending and combining mm-hmm. together, and now heroes are spawning yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. New comics, new whole new things are happening, and that's all great. But that was all happening because DC had a much looser idea of comics continuity. <laughs> uh, for a long time, just, just to speak about it briefly, there was flat out was no such thing. You know what I mean? Zero. Yeah, the, Superman did something one issue, he couldn't do it two issues later. So it was they had no connectivity between them. And even in their early days, people would write stories, but they wouldn't necessarily be company wide, or they wouldn't expect them to have affected other heroes. Uh, a certain gentleman by the name of Stan Lee changed all of that in the 60s. But first, Chris, we've got to go all the way back to the Golden Age one more time. <laughs> okay. So put on, put on your uh, you know, newsboy hat and whatever. And, uh, extra, extra. Exactly. And we'll, uh, <laughs> so now, uh, back then, Marvel was a company called Timely, and they were in the comics game, too, and they had a stable of their own heroes. The first crossover ever in comics, as well as a rare multi-issue story, was in Marvel Mystery Comics number 8 through 10, June through August 1940. This was an anthology title, but uh, the story was Namor vs. the Human Torch. It went on for three issues by Bill Everett and Carl Burgos with John Compton, uh, probably assisting on inks. Uh, The story actually ends with one page quote-unquote, ends in issue 10, claiming that the fight ended in a stalemate and solicits the readers for solutions. So, not that satisfying. Uh, Though these characters met, there was no lasting result, though, or implication that they'd be bumping into each other again, though they would. 
Mm-hmm. The All Winner, the All Winner Squad debuted in All Winners Comics number nineteen. This is fall nineteen forty six, in an enti- in an issue entirely written by Bill Finger. Uh, this was timely slash Marvel's answer to National slash All Americans All Star Comics. Uh, this is a team consisting of Captain America, Bucky, the original Human Torch, his sidekick Toro, Namor the Submariner, the Wizard, and Miss America. Uh, this comic was set up in the same way as All Star Comics, so you'd have, you know, you'd have a couple of pages just to start where they're all just gabbing and chatting. Then right. you have several stories of individual hero, like anthology stories of each hero, and then yeah. maybe a capper at the end. And they wrap up at the end. So, so, sometimes even saying what they've done, although often not even that. <laughs> now, now this team would only make two appearances. This is in issues 19 and 21. Uh, there was no uh, number 20 for some reason. I, I'm, maybe uh, Todd McFarlane was the editor or something. Maybe some, I don't know what happened there, but who knows? Uh, you know, records weren't so important. It was sure. speed was of the day. So now we're going to fast forward to 1961. We're going to put on our pillbox hats and uh, mm-hmm. play some Elvis. And publisher Martin Goodman of Marvel gives Stan Lee the task to create a superhero team like the Justice League of America, which was doing very well. Stan was the only comic book writer on staff. Think about that. Uh, the team would be, of course, the Fantastic Four, who debuted in the Fantastic Four number one, November 1961, cover date, drawn by Jack Kirby. Now, at this time, Marvel was restricted to publishing eight titles a month. We've talked about this before by their yeah. distributor, because their distributor also distributed national slash DC comics and didn't see the point in being their own competition. Uh, Stan wrote all of them. Um, and as such, he was able to have them cross over in ways never before done in comics. So, mm-hmm. and originally writing eight comics, it's not, it's not such a feat, but you know, as time went on, it, it really built up. Uh, sure. These characters would react to things happening in other series and events in their super team, the Avengers, which debuted with the Avengers number one, September, 1963 cover date by Lee and Kirby that would shape future stories. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at like the cover of uh, Amazing Spider-Man number one, he's visiting the Fantastic Four on That's the right. cover, yeah, trying exactly. to join up. It's so yeah. There's a connectivity. Plus, almost all of them were in New York, right? At the all time, in New York, yeah. <laughs> I think that most of them still are. Um, <laughs> now, this continuity would come to a head in Fantastic Four Annual number three. This is November 1965, when Reed Richards and Sue Storm were married, and just about every hero and villain was in attendance for the blessed event. Mm. Uh, two heroes not in attendance are you know, conspicuous by their absence and also illustrate how tight co- uh, continuity was kept at the time. Uh, we have uh, Namor was missing because during this period of time, he was trying to reclaim his throne from the warlord Krang, uh, which was being depicted in Tales to Astonish number 70 through 76, so he couldn't show up. Mm-hmm. Also, we have the Hulk. He was being manipulated by the leader into stealing the ultimate machine in Tales to Astonish 70 through 74. So that's a... That's very tightly knit. I love I, I love that fact that it's, it's not even just a matter of let's throw in all of our intellectual properties, but sure. let's leave out the ones that can't make it. I mean, just just as an aside, I think in the same year or right around the same time as when Rita Farr and Steve Dayton of the Doom Patrol, which would have been the most Marvel-ish DC comic at the time, Certain. they had their wedding, and like they had like half a dozen. I, I remember Superman was there, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. A couple of guys were there, but they couldn't have. They didn't even think it was about a having sad all of them. Nor did nor did anyone consider whether people could make it or not. It wasn't that's you know one company was you know there was a living and breathing you know continuity. The other company there was no such thing, nor do they care. 
yeah, one you knew it was a shared universe. The other one was shared when it was convenient right. or when they remembered. I, I'd love to look at some because I know the uh, the scene of Reed and Sue getting married has been redone time and time again. I, I'd love to look at it and see if Hulk and Namor are, are in the uh, are in the crowd. I, I could almost put money on them them being there. Wow, interesting. In the yeah, in the re, redraws. So really, that'd be a retcon now, wouldn't it? Uh, we <laughs> it would nuts. be. Oh, well, I got a, I got a letter ready to write to Marvel right now. There we go. No prize all over the place. <laughs> Uh, Marvel would have many more crossovers and feature and, and feature appearances throughout the years, even beyond Stanley's tenure as writer, as the as the bullpen grew and more writers came in. Uh, Marvel's editor in chief during the '80s, Jim Shooter, was arguably the most continuity-driven of any Marvel EIC before or since. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he uh, he he certainly deserves his own podcast, and and we we've been threatening to get there, and eventually Absolutely. we will. We, we, to be honest, Chris and I talk about it a lot. We just have a lot. Really sat down to it but we really do want to and what i you know what we kind of have implied but not said here is that between stanley and jim shooter at marvel arguably things are a little looser but loosey goosey yeah they still were you know it was still continuity driven and expected sure. to be that way um so across the street at dc comics continuity was a mess as we've been discussing especially when compared to what's happening in marvel and again this was like i said owed to many decades of people not caring about keeping continuity in between issues never mind across a, a series and then there were writers like bob haney and e nelson bridwell who flat out just seemed <laughs> not to care what was happening in other comics if they saw a character they liked they threw him in their comic didn't matter if they were, you know, what was the deal with them at all. What earth they were on. What, exactly. What, if they he were had, real. He had a whole series where, you know, uh, Batman and Superman had sons. Why not? They didn't, yep. didn't really care. <laughs> uh, conjecturally, though, and this is really just uh, something that we were thinking about, DC maybe felt some shame over their sillier Silver Age happenings and wanted to kind of do away with them. Uh, again, especially in compared to what Marvel was doing in the Civil, Silver Age. You heard some of the stories we recapped in the Justice League you know, Johnny Thunder's joke book. Telling jokes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this, this is, I think this was some of the attitude there. But then, anyway, I, no one ever said that. Uh, and of course, the main reason any comic publisher enacts a deep change, sales were bad uh, across the board for mm -hmm. DC. Uh, Marv says, while writing Green Lantern, I received a letter from a fan asking about a mix-up in DC continuity. In my reply, I said, one day we, meaning the DC editorial we, will probably straighten up what's in the DC universe and what is outside. At this point in its history, DC Comics had Earth-1, Earth-2, Earth-3, Earth-B, etc. There were superheroes in each Earth and... Through old time, the old time readers had no problem understanding DC continuity. It proved off putting to new readers who suddenly discovered there was not one, but three Supermans, Wonder Woman's, Batman's, etc. And three is a conservative number. It sure is. <laughs> More further reveals when I was growing up in the 60s, the superhero team, the superhero team comic to read was The Justice League of America, a book featuring seven or eight of DC superheroes. Occasionally, the JLA will meet the Justice Society of America, their 1940s counterparts from Earth 2, which was in another dimension. And we'd have maybe 15 or 16 heroes in a special two part JLA slash JSA story. But being the greedy fan that I was, I always wanted to see a single story featuring all the DC superheroes from the past, present, and future. Hmm. And not to bury the lead, but Marv continued, I even came up with, with a villain for the saga and gave him the ever-so-awesome name of The Librarian. Pretty scary, eh? What's he going to do? Charge the heroes a nickel a day for overdue books? 
Let me tell you, my junior high school librarian would you'd be scared of. That's that's mm -hmm. a uh, brainiac level villain right there. <laughs> With a yard stick. Sure. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, the groundwork began in 1982 when uh, Peter Sanderson was brought in as staff researcher to take notes on every single comic wow. <laughs> ever produced by DC Comics since 1935. Sounds like a dream job, but I'm sure oh, it was... Boy. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he was he was looking for dark rooms there. Um, this research would inform both Crisis on Infinite Earths and Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. I mean, you know, we do a lot of research through online and through magazines yep. and comics for our stuff. Can you imagine digging through drawers? And, yeah, exactly. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm aware I'm having a good time, but even then it can be a, a little much. You go down these rabbit holes. Yeah, just imagine every comic uh, up to that point. Boy, that's a big job. Let's tell you a little bit about Peter Sanderson. He was a notable comic book historian who served as a researcher for both Marvel and DC over the years. He was born April 25, 1952 in Milton, Massachusetts and studied at Columbia University. While in college, he was a prolific letter hack for DC Comics. Julius Schwartz appreciated his analysis so much he would expand and retitle the letters column to a second or even third page to fit it all in. Wow. <laughs> uh, for example, some of these titles were Flashgrams Extra, or Letters to the Batcave Extra, or one time the JLA Mailroom Special Peter Sanderson Edition. Uh, he also wrote for fanzines during the early 1980s, and presently he's an instructor and lecturer. Indeed. Uh, now, this maxi series uh, was originally planned to run 10 issues, and it was originally called History of the DC Universe. It was then expanded to 12 issues and retitled DC Universe colon, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, Marvin George would eventually use the title History of the DC Universe a yep. bit later on, but uh, we'll, we'll get there. Yep. Not today, but we'll get there. <laughs> Now, uh, double-page house ads running in DC Comics during cover date March 1985 stated, we've got a picture of the monitor, like a silhouette of the monitor and a picture of his satellite. It says, for the past 12 months, he's been monitoring the DC universe, watching, waiting, scheming. Now you will find out why. The most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Worlds will live, worlds will die, and that's only the beginning. DC Universe, colon, Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. <laughs> Talk about, you know, both enticing and not really telling you anything, but that's a, yep. that's a comic book <laughs> ad for you. Uh, April 1985 house ads for Crisis on Infinite Earths feature the familiar title and logo that you see on the uh, comics themselves. Yeah, the DC Universe was dropped. That's right. The, uh, the DC 50th anniversary bullet is prominently featured in the top left corner with the tagline, a 12-part maxi-series you dare not miss. Worlds will live, worlds will die, and the DC Universe will never be the same. Crisis on Infinite Earths, DC Comics, here's where it all began. Be here for the new beginning. And the first real inkling that fans and readers of DC Comics got about Crisis and Infinite Earths was found in Giordano, Dick Giordano's Meanwhile dot 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 column that ran as a text page in comics throughout the DC line, sort of like Stan's soapbox right. over at Marvel. Exactly like that. Now, in the column that appeared in those comics for the June 1984 cover date, Giordano noted that we felt it appropriate to save this blockbuster maxi-series, which would become Crisis, for this anniversary year because the changes in our universe and the startling events that will unfold within its pages will alter forever the DC universe and provide some wonderful stepping stones for the next 50 years. Clue, look for odd occurrences in DC titles from now till the end of the year. 
They will provide additional clues as to who, what, where, when, and why of the DC Universe maxi-series. And we'll be talking about them. Uh, because in a memo from Giordano, crisis writer Marl Wolfman, and writer-editor Len Wein, to all DC editors and writers, the mandate was given that because this series involves the entire DC Universe, we do ask that each editor and writer cooperate with the project by using a character called The Monitor in their books twice during the next year. In a follow-up memo to the entire editorial staff, Giordano reiterated that the need to include the monitor in your plans is not optional, but absolutely required for all designated titles. <laughs> However, only three months later, Giordano, Wolfman, and Ween notified the editorial staff that plans for Crisis had changed. After you use the monitor twice, they said, please do not use him again. He'll be gone by next summer. There you go. And uh, so let's get into some of those... Uh... Or, uh, I, I, to our knowledge, every single this pre-crisis monitor. This should be everyone, all right? Uh, yeah. Yes. I, I, I laid down some, and you went in, you did the grunt work to uh, make sure, <laughs> and this, uh, this should be all of them. So this is sort of the comics before the comics. Indeed. Um, now, the monitor was seeded into the DCU pretty early on, as we said, by editorial mandate. Uh, most of these appearances contribute... <laughs> Little to nothing <laughs> to the uh, actual Crisis on Infinite Earths Maxi series, and in some cases, it, it could be argued that they actually contradict his uh, purpose in yeah. the uh, universe or multiverse. Um, his first appearance, New Teen Titans number 21, July 1982 by Wolfman and Perez. While the Titans face off with the Church of Brother Blood, the Monitor monitors the situation for all of two panels. Uh, we do not see his face. Uh, he claims that the information he's found will be, quote, valuable to his clients, unquote. Uh, the caption reads, who is this mystery man? That is a story for another day. Hmm. And that other day came partially in the <laughs> Titans annual number two, August 1983 by Wolfman and Perez. We still don't get a look at the man's face, but drug lord Mr. Scarapelli requests a dozen special guards and the monitor could only offer him six, so he's uh, doing security. He's a supplier. Right. Yeah, right. he supplies security so far. Uh, we've got Green Lantern, Volume 2, Number 173. This is February 1984 by Len Wein and Dave Gibbons. Uh, Lila uh, reports to the monitor that she's received a phone call from, quote, that annoying Congressman Block about stepping up his campaign against Ferris Aircraft. The monitor treats this request as though he's running a business, and Block is his customer. Uh, you'll see, if, if, you know, when we get into these characters, this is, if you haven't read this before, you'll see why this is such a strange treatment. Yes. Uh, Green Lantern, Volume 2, Number 176, May 1984, also by Whedon Gibbons. Block comes a call again and demands monitor put him in touch with someone that will eradicate Ferris aircraft for him. The monitor asks Lilac to connect him to Rosie. Who's Rosie? You just wait. Yeah, because in Green Lantern, Volume 2, 178, July 1984, also by Ween and Gibbons, Green Lantern fights the Demolition Team, which Whoa. is led by Rosie, and, and wins. The Demolition Team is a very kooky-looking—it's it's like construction workers. Right. It's, it's nuts. Uh, now, in a, in a rate— Block calls the monitor to complain, and the monitor washes his hands of the situation, preferring, preferring not to suffer fools. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> now, the, uh, these next batch of comic books all have a cover date of, of uh, October 1984, except where we note specifically. Uh, the Flash, sorry, The Flash number 338 and 339 by Carrie Bates and Carmen Infantino. No actual monitor appearance in 338. He just guides the, the rogues to a cachet of future tech armor via a note. 
It reads, I trust you and your partners in crime will find the enclosed merchandise to your satisfaction. As usual, it comes with a complete money-back guarantee. Signed, The Monitor. And number 339, November 1984, Lila and The Monitor monitor the situation. <laughs> the Monitor spake, I deserve, and rec- I deserve and record events. I do not editorialize upon them. Yes, so he uh, he's morally in the uh, gray here. So, yeah, well, it's, it he seems just... like some people want him to be a watcher, right? Yeah. Some people want him to be uh, a... Destro. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's <laughs> up in the air as it is right now. Certainly. Uh, we hop back over to the Titans. We've got Tales of the Teen Titans number 47 by Wolfman and Perez. We get a single panel of the monitor where he is informed that Hive, H-I-V-E, has been defeated. And so he says he'll update his files. <laughs> Why not? Now, Blue Devil number five by Dan Mishkin, Gary Khan, and uh, or Gary Cohn and Paris Collins. Lila and the Monitor monitor Blue Devil. Lila thinks his long longhorns are so cute. Uh, now, this might be our first frontal shot of the monitor, though his face is entirely in shadows. You just see the like you see like the whites of his eyes, basically. Right. And yeah, just a big ink ink splotch over yeah, the face. Just a splotch. Uh, so, Fury of Firestorm, number 28, by Jerry Conway and Raphael Kayanen. Sorry. I'm glad you had to say that. Yeah. Uh, the Monitor, <laughs> it's not the only time, but uh, the Monitor is contacted by a Ms. Clemens who claims the 2000 committee is tired of waiting. They'd like Firehawk to be regained. Firehawk is the daughter of Senator Walter Riley. Monitor says it's all under control and laughs maniacally. Sure. Yeah, like it's like like the lettering is huge. It's like it's like the Joker laughing. Oh too. yeah, it's like big ha ha ha. Yeah, yeah that's a whole like page, it. doesn't it? Yeah, he's a real chuckle guy. Yeah. <laughs> now we go to Action Comics number five sixty by Paul Kupperberg and Alex Savick. Uh, the Monitor is contacted by small time crook John Doe about procuring better equipment. So it seems like uh, a lot of DC's writers see the Monitor as a, like an intergalactic arms merchant right now, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, or or some kind of a intergalactic thug, like a mafia, like you know, sure. like a head of a crime family, like or a connected something. dude. Yeah, uh, we'll find these. Not really. That's not his intention. <laughs> uh, in Batman and the Outsiders, number fourteen and fifteen, that would have been October through November nineteen eighty four, by Mike Barr and Bill Willingham on uh, number fourteen, Trevor Von Eden on number fifteen. In 14, it's the 1984 Olympic Games, and Maxi Zeus is looking to start some stuff. He asks if the Monitor has his back. The Monitor will back anybody up, so long as the check clears. Because he needs cash, I guess. He does. In number 15, the Outsiders beat Maxi Zeus, and he's taken into custody. Lila fears he may betray them. The Monitor assuages her fears by suggesting that Zeus, though mad, is a man of honor. Mm-hmm. Now, the next comics we're going to discuss all have a cover date of November 1984. We've got Justice League of America, number 232, by Kurt Busiek and Alan Kupperberg. In his longest appearance to date, this is about three pages. Whoa. The mon- yeah, the Monitor explains the story of Dr. Joshua Champion to Lila. Basically, he tapped into another universe and gained powers to take over the Earth. Fair enough. And, and didn't, but yeah, there well, you go. <laughs> but, yeah. Tales of Legion of Superheroes, number 317, by Paul Levitz, Mindy Newell, and Terry Shoemaker. The Monitor monitors Mon-El and refers him to him as stronger than both Superman and Supergirl. They head back to the past, and Lila is upset that she did not get the opportunity to indulge in some 30th century shopping. That's too bad. Uh, Saga of the Swamp Thing, number 30, by Alan Moore and Steve Bissett. Or Bissett. 
The monitor's page starts with the caption, and above the sky, a watchman watches, which is pretty cute. Yeah. Uh, now, Lila in the monitor. Monitor the swampy situation in Louisiana. Uh, Lila asked the monitor what they should do, and his reply is, we watch. So while we have some, like we mentioned earlier, some folks think that the monitor was an arms dealer yeah. or a thug, Alan Moore's going the Watu the Watcher, uh, you know, route. Yeah, and you really get the impression that it's they're not getting very clear instructions, except just it's all very nebulous. Yeah. Jam him in, even even as we come really close to the uh, you know series debuting. Uh, but it goes on in Wonder Woman number 321 by Dan Mishkin and Don Heck. The Monitor and Lila appear in the Huntress backup strip. Uh, the Monitor is unsure why Helena pushes on. Lila suggests she does so in, hope of, in hopes of gaining her independence and freedom. Who, who from? We don't know. Your guess is no, good as ours know. with that one. Infinity Inc. number 8 by uh, Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Jerry Ordway. Uh, now on Earth 2, the ultra-humanite checks in with the Monitor, even calling him his silent partner. Tut-tut, my monkey-faced friend, the Monitor has a different idea. He says, partner, read your contract, Ultra. I'm a supplier. Nothing more. And apparently he issues legally binding contracts, too. It's all, he does. It's all very he on does. the up and up with the monitor. you got to understand. Mm-hmm. He keeps He's got some very clean records. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, this next batch of comic books all have a cover date of December 1984. Uh, in All-Star Squadron number 40 by Roy Thomas and Richard Howell, a man tries to start a race war by framing Amazing Man for killing a white man. He uses the android Real American supplied by the Monitor to whip up anti-black fervor. When the android gets beat, the Monitor claims that he had read the guarantee, that had he read the guarantee, (laughs) the racist would see that the robot was only supposed to function, not necessarily be successful. Seems that while the Monitor was an arms dealer, his arms aren't the best quality, but again, all covered in the contract, folks. It's all in the contract. Hey, get your lawyer. Read the small you print. Yep. Agreement with the monitor. Goodness. <laughs> we got uh, DC Comics presents number seventy-six, featuring Wonder Woman, uh, by Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, and Eduardo Barreto. As we said, this is a Superman Wonder Woman team-up issue, and the monitor monitors and suggests that the ensuing battle might be one for his permanent records. I really got to see this guy's records. It must be like a I know it. file cabinets that go on for miles. Uh, <laughs> in Superman number 402 by Carrie Bates and Kurt Swan, some space doctors chasing an escaped mental patient who believes himself to be Superman pay the monitor an exorbitant fee in order to be sent Superman in his direction. Yep. Uh, we've got uh, Swamp Thing number 31, Alan Moore and Rick Veitch. The Monitor monitors the events occurring in Louisiana. In a neat touch, he says that in light of the terror he's witnessed, this is the first time he's ever felt the urge to look away. Mm. Uh, these comic books we're going to talk about next all have a cover date of January 1985, so we're, we're counting down, folks. Uh, Justice League of America number 234 by Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton. This is early on in the the Detroit League uh, incarnation, a team that appears to fascinate the Monitor in their unpredictability. We get a footnote informing readers to check out the upcoming maxi-series Crisis Earth for more information on the Monitor, which is not what it was called, but close enough. (laughs) Uh, Superman 403, Paul Kupperberg and Kurt Swan. 
Now, this might be the first time we see the outline of the monitor's head, which shows his distinctive cornrows. Uh, Now, for this story, his trade is information rather than arms. Which is maybe might mark a shift in you know the direction the character is being uh, portrayed at. Him. Possibly, uh, yeah. I will say that Paul Kupperberg is known as a writer that was willing to play ball more than Absolutely. some others. So this could be more directed. But anyway, that's totally conjecture. In uh, World's Finest Comics number three eleven by Joey Cavallari and Stan Walk, the Monitor and Lila actually open this issue, making pithy comments about Superman and Batman being the hoi polloi of the superhero circuit, despite presenting themselves as of the people. <laughs> Lila suggests screwing with them a bit, but Monitor says it's not his style. Monitor's gonna monitor. That's it. Halfway through the issue, he seems to reconsider this stance and suggests the world's fighters have limits, which can be broken. Uh, Wonder Woman 323 by Dan Mishkin and Don Heck. The Monitor and Lila open another issue, this time receiving a phone call from Dr. Psycho. And I don't know about you, but it's funny to think that there's, there's a phone. Just pick up a phone next to his, next to his desk, you know. Hello? Just call the Monitor. Monitor talking? Yeah, I know. Ridiculous. How may I direct your call? Uh, <laughs> later on in the issue, he gets a call from the Silver Swan. Uh, and at this point, it looks like the Monitor is almost becoming a full-fledged cast member yeah, of Wonder Woman. We have to work him in somehow. <laughs> uh, Tales of the Legion of Superheroes, number 319 and 320. That was January, February 1985 by Paul Levitz and Terry Shoemaker. In 319, the Monitor reveals he has been hired to procure a certain item from the 30th century. In 320, the item is revealed to be the, dematerial, the dematerializer, and their client is, reversed, is revealed to be Universo. It doesn't matter much, though, the Monitor was unsuccessful in getting it, but he still keeps those advanced credits because, hey, that's business of crime, folks. That's how it works. <laughs> now, uh, these comics all have a cover date of February of 1985. We got Vigilante number 14 by Marv Wolfman and Trevor Von Eden. The Monitor is not seen or mentioned during the story. However, it's later revealed that he supplied the, the big bad here, Mr. Hammer, with shadow suits. In Amethyst Number 2 by Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, and Rick Estrada, the Monitor finds an immense power emanating from the city of Hudson. However, he has no record of superheroes in the area. He zeroes in on the reading and finds a slumbering girl who, as it happens, is Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, Action Comics 564 by Paul Kupperberg and Alex Savick. The Master Jailer calls in and uh, promises payment. That's right. about it. Uh, <laughs> DC Comics presents number 78, featuring the Forgotten Heroes and Forgotten Villains, by uh, Wolfman and Kurt Swan. Lila reports to the Monitor that, quote, the time has come and the proper energies are forming. The issue ends with them taking a look at Earth-3. The final caption reads, at last, the Monitor's scheme. It begins in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Wow, so they got a title now. They do. Uh, in GI Combat number 274 and 275, that was February, March, March 1985, cover dates by Robert Kaniger and Sam Glansman. In 274, the Monitor very briefly shows up during a haunted tank feature. He tells General Stewart that he's new to their realm and will return to reveal more. We actually get a pretty good look at the monitor here, closest to a full-on shot as we've seen so far. In number 275 of GI Combat, the monitor monitors. That's what he do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warlord number 91, March 1985 by Carrie Burkett and uh, Dan Jerkins. To facilitate revisiting Travis Morgan's origin as Warlord, the monitor and Lila watch the Morgan tapes. <laughs> 
Fair enough. Uh, Jonah Hex number 90. Now, we talked about people playing ball. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Jonah Hex number 90. Uh, <laughs> April 1985 by Michael Fleischer and Gray Morrow. Jonah sees a shooting star, <laughs> which is in actuality the monitor satellite. And that's it. You yeah. just see he looks at a shooting star and goes, what in tarnation is that? That's what we and call that's following your the letter and not the spirit of the law. That's right a fact. There. He was not interested <laughs> in this inclusion, but he did what he had to do. Uh, Batman number 384, June 1985, cover date by Doc Mensch and Rick Hoberg. The issue opens with Monitor and Lila setting up Batman's match which is against the calendar, calendar man. So there goes this whole thing about not interfering, but that was, you know, months ago, so things have sure. changed. Uh, Detective Comics 551, June 1985, by Doug Mensch and Pat Broderick. Monitor doesn't show up, but it is more of that calendar man story, and uh, bet you'll never guess who wins. Well, we are reading nowadays calendar man of Gotham City still, so That's obviously right. we know who won. <laughs> uh, in the Flash number 350, this is this is the weird one that's not important but is important. In uh, October 1985, cover date by Carrie Bates and Carmine Infantino. The final issue, Trial of the Flash, finally ends. And boy, it was a long trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry and a big, fat, bald man claiming to be Iris, trust us on this, they retire to the far-flung future. There's no monitor appearance here, but it's often mentioned as a pre-crisis appearance, and it becomes uh, relevant in issue two of the crisis, which we will read today. And in the final pre-crisis monitor appearance, we've got Tales of the Teen Titans number 58. This is October 1985 by Wolfman and Chuck Patton. Stuff goes down, and Simon, who's the, you know, the, the brain in the head guy. That's right. Poseidon uh, is how his name is spelled. Poseidon, yes. Uh, he is swept onto the monitor satellite. Now, this is our first full frontal shot of the monitor. Get your mind out of the gutter. And uh, <laughs> this is the first time we see Lila in her Harbinger gear. Uh, before this, she was like just wearing normal yeah. space age clothes, kind of. She just has kind of like a, I don't even know, like a uh, a drape on her, really, just sort of wearing a yeah. big dress. That's it. Yeah. Now, uh, when the monitor mentions Crisis on Infinite Earths, it actually appears in that now classic uh, logo in his voice balloon. And that's when you know something's official, where they're using mm. a, a copyrighted logo, a trademarked logo. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, now we know this is an official appearance, and. Chris, I think this has got to be the longest we've gone talking about comics without even talking about the comics that we're going to be reading today. <laughs> I think you're right. But that's that's the kind of issue this is. This is our 50th episode. You know, we wanted to go all out. So uh, we're going to take a break and relax our, our vocal cords for a little bit. And uh, when we come back, we will go through Crisis at Infinite Earths number one and number two with special concentration on issue number two. Hey, everybody. I'm Mike Avila with Sci-Fi Wire. And today I'm sitting down with Comics legend George Perez, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for pronouncing my name right, too. I appreciate it. <laughs> so you joined Wonder Woman after doing Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was a book that really changed the direction of, of major comics um, moving forward. Um, how much of an artistic challenge was working on that series for you? Oh, that was a fun book. I mean, if, if Marv Wolfman uh, would uh, write a, a scene with five characters, he'd get 15. Uh, I was having the time of my life. I mean, for me, it was a book that, I, from what I've been told, I was not the original artist of choice uh, on the book. But when I first heard about it, I had who, my friend. Who, who did they want to do that book before I don't you? know, actually. I'm not sure. I've heard different stories. And, uh, again, once I said yes, they didn't know I would, I would want the book. But the second I heard about it, I thought I had my fingerprints all over it before I ever touched it. And when I said, 
you know, I would love to do this. You know, how many characters can I draw? I want to draw everybody I can get my hands on. So for me, it was an absolute joy. Uh, I had already done, you know, the Titans. I had done the, the Justice League. Now I get to draw everybody, including characters that are obscure, but I really wanted to draw them. I had never drawn the metal men professionally. I got to draw them. Uh, you know, certain characters I wasn't even as familiar with, you know, but like uh, the Dolphin, uh, 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 and all, the, all these great villains, you know, again, what other chances were, was I going to get? And again, working with Marv Wolfman is a dream. I love working with Marv. He and I did, a, you know, had a great time working on, um, on the Titans together and to work on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Some of my best moments I have been with Marv Wolfman. Is it kind of amazing that 32 years later, Crisis is still a book that comes up and, and you see the impact that it's had just on the DC universe alone? How many Crisis events have they had? Well, yeah. it also, there was, a, there was a term that didn't exist up until that series was over. Pre-crisis, post-crisis, because everything is now measured by that that mm -hmm. particular point of time in the DC universe, the pre-crisis universe and the post-crisis universe. And I was proud I came up with a title because we knew we wanted to use the name Crisis based on the old Justice League stories. But then I, you know, the idea of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and um, it was just a groundbreaker. It was uh, not the first of the maxi series. I believe Secret War started before. Um, at Marvel before Crisis, but it's the one by which all the others are measured now. And as you said, they've done Infinite Crisis, Final Crisis, you know, uh, Crisis on Crisis, whatever. Um, <laughs> and the only lament I have about that is that it was so successful that everyone's doing it, but not, you know, different versions of it, but not for the same intent. It, the, the intention was at the time to try to clean up the DC universe, not because we wanted to make a big event, was that uh, they thought that the DC universe needed to be simplified a bit. So Crisis had a specific mm -hmm. purpose. We didn't know it was going to sell. We didn't know, you know what, what type of uh, uh, reception it was going to get, um, which is, I think, sometimes the most exciting time to work on a book when you don't know how it's going to do it. You just want to do a good story. Um, and it ended up becoming, you know, the standard by which all uh, maxi-series are measured. It was a fun book. In the long run, not as, as successful and as far as long-term changes, but it was a lot of fun for me as an artist to draw. Welcome back, everybody. We went through a lot of information there. We talked about <laughs> the creators. We talked about the history of comic books, pretty much, and why uh, Crisis and Infinite Earths happened, as well as uh, all the seated appearances of the monitor and things that would be uh, somewhat relevant to crisis and infinite earths in the when it came out and now we're finally going to read crisis and infinite earths we're going to do issues one and two today uh one we're going to just give a pretty thorough breakdown but uh we're saving our talents for the second issue <laughs> so uh crisis and the infinite earth that was a cover date 1985 the story was titled the summoning a band across the top of the cover reads 12-issue maxi-series, and it's printed in gold ink. The DC logo is the uh, the left is the familiar bullet logo. That's uh, the zero in the number 50, and this is all kind of in the corner, um, just where you would expect to see the logo normally. This is to denote, of course, the 50th anniversary of DC Comics, and the, whole, the logo, this whole strip, is printed in gold ink. Uh, Christ and Infer the Crisis on Infinite Earths logo 
was the word crisis large and multiple earth spanning and converging within the letters. If you've seen it, you know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, these elements are on every cover of the series going forward, so we're not going to mention them again. Just picture them there. That's They look the same. This one is a first issue spectacular to wet your collector's whistle. And the cover is a wraparound image depicting infinite Earth smashing into each other and releasing bolts of energy. You know, when you unfold the cover, it it really is a spectacular image. It is. It, it's, yeah. it's something you really got to check out, and you can easily see it online, so you don't need to... Uh, knock yourself out getting the comic. Uh, the worlds are lined up neatly and extend to a glowing vanishing point on the back cover. That's the wraparound part. Yes, uh, we have several familiar DC heroes and villains on the cover, and we're going to list them. <laughs> We've got Batman, The Flash, Solovar of Gorilla City, Ultraman of Earth-3. There's also the Green Lantern, John Stewart, Alexander Luther of Earth-3, Psycho Pirate, Superwoman of Earth-3. Obsidian, Geoforce, Firebrand, this is the Danette Riley version, and Poseidon. <laughs> uh, Cyborg, Dr. Polaris, Dawnstar, and Arian. Uh, Firestorm, Blue Beetle, Superman of Earth 2, Power Ring. Uh, don't know some of these names? Well, by the end of this series, you're going to know all of them. That's right. We're going to give a lot of detailed information about every character that appears in this series. But mm -hmm. not on the covers, only in the comics, folks. We had to <laughs> make some limits. Uh, and a couple of new people are on the cover, too. One of them isn't really brand new. Uh, one of them is Harbinger. This is the person that we first saw as Ly Lila Michaels in the New Teen Titans, Volume 1, Annual Number 2. July 83, and you heard we were talking about her interacting with the Monitor a lot in the uh, pre-crisis appearances. And then there's Pariah. This is his debut, so we'll learn about him together, but really we're going to learn how annoying he is, is pretty much. Wow. Yeah, wow. Pariah the Cryo, we call him. <laughs> Now, inside the book, a brief history of the multiverse. In four vertically tiled panels, gradually widening and growing larger, the multiverse is born. It starts from a white light that sort of barfs out flaming hot pan planets here. Uh, a double-page double spread shows an Earth being consumed by an unstoppable negative space. The streets of this populated world are crowded with panicked people rushing vainly away from the whiteness. It absorbs everyone and everything, and one fella is floating around watching the whole thing happen. That's right. It's Pariah, the green cloak. Hey. The green cloak, purple-haired dude from the front <laughs> cover. He's cursed to watch various universes in his multiverse die. Already has hundreds under his belt. He's also on hand to point out how futile life is. That's sort of he he shows up and just announces that the world is dying and everyone is, should freak out. Uh, <laughs> it's because of some sin he committed, about which we will learn more later, and not in this episode. Uh, before the all-consuming whiteness can destroy Pariah, he disappears and teleports away to parts unknown, basically another dying universe. That's his thing. Yes. Uh, next, this devouring blob bears down on Earth-3. You remember in the pre-crisis appearances, they focused on Earth-3 toward the end there. Uh, now, as we mentioned, Earth-3 is the home of the crime syndicate of America. This is the Justice League analogs that were the bad guys. Uh, they first appeared in Justice League of America number 29, August 1964, by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Alexander Luthor of Earth-3 is the world's only superhero, as it would happen. Yeah. Uh, the incoming antimatter is turning Earth-3's sky red and causing lots of natural disasters. Ultraman, who is Earth-3's Superman, and Power Ring, who is Earth-3's Green Lantern, are trying to contain the damage. Owlman, who is Earth-3's Batman, and Johnny Quick, which, who is Earth-3's Flash, are standing on a beach and 
kind of freaking out about things. That's basically <laughs> standing there just like, uh-oh, what do we uh -oh, do now? Going down. <laughs> uh, Alexander Luther, he's flying around surveying the damage. Uh, Superwoman, who's sort of would be the Earth-3 Wonder Woman with a little Supergirl thrown in there, uh, uses her super strength to bolster some rock against the rushing nothingness, but to no avail, she is consumed. Alexander laments the death of his foe and then zips back home to spend some last moments with his wife, Lois Lane, and their newborn son, Alex. While the mm -hmm. antimatter takes every member of the crime syndicate and the world around them, the Luther stuff baby Alex into a rocket and shoots it somehow through the universe's barrier and onto a space station orbiting Earth-1. And Pariah hovers nearby watching and crying. That's what he does. <laughs> <laughs> and now, the double-page splash title. A shadowy figure known as a monitor observes all through round... Uh, the monitors. <laughs> we don't see him clearly yet, but we do see Lila Michaels. Uh, they discuss the fact that it's time to get down to business. She is to retrieve a specific set of heroes as defined by the monitor. He's going to go grab baby Alex Luther from the space station. Lila changes into her Harbinger gear, uh, which requires her to absorb a whole lot of energy. <laughs> it's actually a full, pa a full page of panels worth of energy. I know, it's like a... a Full-page costume change. It's like, mm -hmm. wow, pretty, pretty impressive. First, Harbinger zips to Gorilla City in Africa and picks up Solovar. Now, Solovar first appeared in The Flash number 106. That was April, May 1959, cover date by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. He's the progressive leader of Gorilla City, a place of sentient gorillas that vibrates at a different frequency than Earth-1 and therefore cannot be discovered by most. The Flash being the one that pretty much can travel back and forth without any problems. Uh, Solvar protests, but Harbinger teleports him away and then disappears herself. Next stop, Harbinger zips to Metropolis in the 30th century. That's, you know, where the Legion hangs out. Mm -hmm. Harbinger lures Dawnstar over and zaps her back to uh, the Monitor's spaceship headquarters. Uh, Dawnstar, she first appeared in Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 226. This is April 1977 by Paul Levitz and Mike Grell. She's from the planet Starhaven, a world col colonized by American Indians abducted from Earth by an unknown alien race in the 13th century. Yeah, and she's got wings. That's another important she do. piece. <laughs> On Earth 2, it is 1942 forever, and some ladies are baking for a war bond drive. Danette Riley, a.k.a. Firebrand, is one of those ladies. She uses her fire-making power to light a gas stove. That's a great use of her superpowers, don't you think? I think so. Uh, Firebrand is recruited by Harbinger back to Monitor's headquarters, and she was first introduced in a special All-Star Squadron preview in Justice League of America number 193 from August 1981, cover date by Roy Thomas, Rich Buckler, and Jerry Ordway. Her story is, while escaping the capture by a tra time-traveling villain, Danette was struck by a bolt of lightning and fell into some mystical lava, giving her the power to shoot fire from her hands and other kind of fire-based stuff that you might expect. Uh, she took over the mantle from her brother, Rod Riley, the original Firebrand. Mm -hmm. As Firebrand and Harbinger zap out of existence, a shadowy figure looks on and laughs menacingly, and it's not the monitor. It's a different no. shadowy figure. Now, it's night in what we assume is Hub City. Four hoodlums hold a woman hostage on top of a building, and the uh, officers, cops are crowded below. Blue Beetle shows up and takes all the bad dudes out, almost kicks one of them off the roof, but catches him by the ankle, and looks for affirmation from the lady hostage. I mean, you know, this is really not the time to be hitting on a, hitting on a chick. She, 
just was a hostage. You know what this I mean? This is Literally. true. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta pick your battles. Yeah. Uh, now, Blue Beetle's origin really stretches back to the Golden Age as well. First appeared in Mystery Men Comics number one, August 1939, produced by the Eisner Iger Studio for Fox Publications. Uh, Charles Nicholas Wachowski. Wachowski? Yeah, why not? Uh, credited as Charles Nicholas. See, I like he, that better. He knew that last name would be tough, too. So. <laughs> yes. He drew the story, but uh, you know, as with many golden and even silver age stories, there is no writer credit. Uh, legend suggests that Will Eisner himself wrote it, but uh, eh, legend is probably wrong in this case. It just doesn't seem, when you, if you read the story, it doesn't seem like an Eisner written thing. Yeah. But, you know, again, without the credit, we can only speculate. Uh, the original Blue Beetle was Dan Garrett, a rookie cop that wore a special bulletproof costume and took vitamin 2X, which endowed him with super energy. Later, Charlton Comics bought the rights to Blue Beetle, along with other Fox publishing properties. That was in 1963, and at first they issued reprints of the Golden Age stories for a little while. Uh, then Blue Beetle was revamped in Captain Adam number 83, that was November 1966, from Charlton, uh, written and drawn by Steve Ditko. This was part of their Action Heroes initiative, and you can learn all about it in Weird Comics History Episode 7, where we talk about the publisher, Charlton. Uh, Charlton would produce some new stories about Dan Garrett, but changed his origin so he gained his super suit and powers from an ancient Egyptian relic that looked like a scarab, which is basically a beetle. See? You get it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Charlton would retool Blue Beetle again, erasing Dan Garrett entirely. And now making him Ted Cord, a genius-level inventor and gifted athlete who made a ton of swell gadgets and stuff. His signature equipment is the bug-shaped personal aircraft, which he entered and exited, typically with a cable suspended from the cockpit. This is the version of Blue Beetle that DC Comics would ultimately acquire after the character was briefly used by AC Comics. We, we do discuss that in that Charlton episode as right. well. And uh, now we're seeing him in this very scene. Harbinger shows up, and I... Pretty sure you know what's coming next. Yep, she shows up, and then she and Blue Beetle are gone. That's uh, what's Mm -hmm. what's happening this issue. Now we go 45,000 years in the past, and Harbinger is looking for Arion. She says the Monitor will be furious if she can't find him in time. Arion first appeared in Warlord number 55, March 1982, cover date as a backup by Paul Kupperberg and Jan Dursima. Uh, Arian is an immortal Atlantean sorcerer who was born in 45,000 BC. At the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths, he's still in the ancient past, but that will change in his story. Uh, while Harbinger flies around in olden times looking for Arian, she's intercepted by a floating shadow. Harbinger reacts to it, but flies on, but we look and her eyes are now totally black. Clearly under the control of some new evil power, Harbinger zips over to Earth 2 in the present to recruit Psycho Pirate to the nefarious cause of her secret master, although he does initially go back to the monitor satellite. Uh, Another very complicated one, Chris. Uh, The first Psycho Pirate was named Charles Halstead, and he first appeared in All-Star Comics number 23, December 1944, by Gardner Fox and Joe Gallagher. Halstead was originally a linotyper for the Daily Courier, who became jealous of his boss's success, so he quit and attacked the newspaper with crimes based on emotions, and that was his only appearance. 
Now, the psycho pirate picked up by Harbinger in the scene is Roger Hayden. He first appeared in Showcase number 56. This is the May-June 1965 uh, issue by Gardner Fox and Murphy Anderson. Uh, convicted criminal Hayden shares a cell with Charles Halstead, who reveals the secret of the golden Medusa masks, which can pro- project emotions onto people. When Hayden gets out, he finds these masks and fuses them together, forming a super emotion pro- projecting mask of crime. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Sure, interesting weapon. Uh, Mm -hmm. Harbinger entices Psycho Pirate out of a mental institution by giving him a Medusa mask and also by, you know, teleporting him out. That was the other enticement. Uh, Then we go back to 45,000 years ago. Arian is built an ice bridge using magic. And Harbinger shows up and just shatters his bridge. Very, very mean, bullying thing. It's a jerk move, yeah. Yeah, but before he can fall to his death... Harbinger swoops down and saves some teleporting away to parts unknown, which we will learn is the monitor. Mm-hmm. On Earth-1, Firestorm dissolves into a prison in order to free Killer Frost. Uh, Firestorm first appeared in Firestorm the Nuclear Man Number 1, March 1978, and was created by Jerry Conway and Al Milgram. High school student Ronnie Raymond and Nobel Prize-winning psych- uh, physicist Martin Stein were caught in an accident that allowed them to fuse into the Nuclear Man, Firestorm. He can fly, shoot fire from his hands, transmute any element, and, uh, you know, his head's permanently on fire. <laughs> sure. He's, he's, he's hard to miss in a crowd. Yeah. Um, now, there have been three Killer Frosts. This one is named Louise Lincoln. She debuted in Firestorm number 21, uh, March 1984, by Jerry Conway and Al Milgram. Uh, after her mentor, Crystal Frost, the, the original Killer Frost, died while tussling with Firestorm, Dr. Lincoln repeated her experiment and took over the role. Uh, she can absorb the heat energy from anything, and this also has the effect of freezing most things. Uh, once freed, she tries to kill him, which, uh, eh, you know, he probably should have seen coming. Yeah, I mean, basically your biggest villain uh, should be the one to free her or him, if that's the case. Yes. Now Harbinger shows up with Psycho Pirate, who gets Killer Frost to become deeply infatuated with Firestorm, and it's kind of funny. Monitor observes all this from a satellite and seems to be aware of Harbinger's traitorousness. Uh, Monitor says that due to an Earth being wiped out, five heroes he needed are gone. So he sent replicants to find replacements. Monitor notes to himself that though he raised her to adulthood, he knows that someday Harbinger will kill him. Mm. A double-page spread shows all of the assembled heroes we've discussed, plus a few more. We've got Geoforce, first appeared in The Brave and the Bold, number 200, as July 1983, by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo. He is Prince Brian Markov, and he's given Earth-moving powers by Dr. Helga Jace, so he can defend his homeland, Markovia. He's a member of the Outsiders, who are the folks that usually... uh, they show up at the end of Batman and. That's right, yeah. And this time they <laughs> definitely did, and we'll talk about the rest of them later on in this series. Uh, Cyborg first appeared in a special insert in DC Comics Presents number 26. Number uh, That was the Teen Titans insert by Wolfman and Perez. Son of Star Lab scientist Victor Stone is horribly mutilated by one of their experiments, so they patch him up with robot parts. And he's a member of the new Teen Titans, and we will definitely be hearing about more of them later. Sure. We got Simon, who's spelled Poseidon. Uh, first appeared in New Teen Titans number three, January 1981, by Wolfman and Perez. Uh, Dr. Simon Jones was trying to contact other dimensions when the demon Trigon showed up and gave him ultra telepathic and telekinetic powers so he could destroy the Earth. Uh, he's that one with the brain and the see through dome on top of his head. Which I, just, I just love that as a gimmick. Like, yeah. How does that make you more powerful that I can see your brain? <laughs> uh, then there's Superman. 
of Earth 2. Now, <laughs> this is a tricky one, folks. In a sense, of course, Superman in any incarnation debuted with Action Comics number one in 1938, but there was a delineated a special Earth 2 Superman in Justice League volume one, number 73, August 1969. But the character is still created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. Uh, this is the classic Golden Age Superman, explained as being from another universe in the multiverse from Earth 2. His Kryptonian name is Kal-El, with no E, and he's got gray hair at his temples. He's basically Superman, though. Uh, does everything Superman can do without the flying. He does a leap and a single bound deal. But he still doesn't he still have heat vision? Like, there's a lot of stuff he didn't have in the Golden It's weird, that yeah, he has. It's, it's, that he has... Yeah, it's a mix. There's sort of a blend going on there, but yeah. it's it's a Superman buffet. <laughs> uh, we've got Obsidian first appeared in All Star Squadron number 25, September 1983, by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. Todd Rice is the son of the Alan Scott Green Lantern, and uh, Rose Canton, who's also known as the Thorn. He's got shadow-based powers and is connected to the mysterious Shadowverse. His sister is Shade. Uh, is, I'm sorry, is Jade, and we will get to her in a bit. That's right. Then there's Green Lantern, who at this time was a fellow named John Stewart. He first appeared in Green Lantern number 87, December 1971, by Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams. Selected by the Guardians as Hal Jordan's backup when the existing backup was seriously injured, and we'll get to that existing backup <laughs> and the Guardians soon enough. At this time, he's an architect and pretty flippant towards authority. Now he's a former Marine that believes in total order, so go figure. Everyone can change over time, I guess. The, the crisis works in, in strange ways. Right. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Polaris. This villain first appeared in Green Lantern number 21, June 1963, by John Broom and uh, Gil Kane. Medical student Neil Emerson develops a, fan, uh, a fanatical interest in magnets and believes that absorbing magnetism has curative properties. Turns out too much of a good thing can turn you into, a, you know, a uh, <laughs> another version of Magneto. Basically, a type of Magneto, although they, they probably they seem to have appeared roughly around the same time. Um, the whole crew was attacked by shadow people or demons or whatever they are. Uh, they, and we're going to see more of them later, so get used to us talking about them. Uh, everyone fights pretty well against them, displaying their individual powers and personalities in the process, which is helpful for new readers. Uh, then a brilliant light forces the shadow thingies to flee. That's when their host, the Monitor, reveals himself. And that concludes issue number one. But of course, Chris, this is an event comic. Mm -hmm. So one event comic would be complete without many crossover issues. And we are going to do our best to detail every crossover in Christ and Infinite Earths to the best of our abilities. So kick it off here. Yeah, we'll start with the ones that uh, follow issue one, and these are arranged uh, per comicbookreadingorders.com. Uh, so uh, if you want to check on what direction to read these things in, definitely check there. We've got All-Star Squadron number 50, 51, and 52, October through December 1985 by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, Mike Clark, and Orville Jones. The Justice Society of America reacts to Firebrand's disappearance and goes looking for her. Uh, 1942 Earth S is beset by the antimatter demons. Commander Steel, who's Hank Haywood, uh, Captain Marvel, Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick, and the Green Lantern, this is the Alan Scott version, are all sent to Earth-1. And, and this Johnny Quick is not the crime syndicate Johnny right. Quick. Right, this, <laughs> this is the golden age good guy Johnny Quick that speaks with a... The, 
a formula. A formula to get to go super speed, which is one of the greatest things you'll ever see in comics in your life. Yes. Uh, then another crossover in Fury of Firestorm number 41, November 1985, by Jerry Conway and Raphael Kayanen. A Harbinger goes to Vandermeer University to recruit Firestorm for the Monitor's Crusade, but the Psycho Pirate infects Professor Stein with fear. And then in Infinity Inc. number 18, September 1985, cover date by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Todd McFarlane, Harbinger recruits Obsidian to Monitor's Satellite. So it sort of fills in the, how some of those heroes got there already when we see yeah, them. Yeah, the missing pages. Right. Now... The main event of the evening. <laughs> Crisis on Infinite Earths number two. Title, Time and Time Again. The cover shows Kamandi tumbling down the side of a tower while Solovar, Jon Stewart, Firestorm, Dawnstar, and the Superman of Earth 2 rush to rescue him. There's also just a hint of a shadowy humanoid figure somehow issuing from the tower. This will all make sense, trust us. Uh, the, comic in, the comic in prehistoric times where Anthro is being... Prehistoric. That's right. Caption says, The dawn of man. Anthro crouches, staring over the ridge not far from the village of the bear people. He waits. They are coming closer. Too close. And Anthro's father's village will be trampled beneath their powerful legs. Both anxious and frightened, Anthro breathes in deeply. Then the young hunter jumps. Anthro lands on the bl- on the back of a woolly mammoth with a hi-ya! Yep. Uh, Anthro the First Boy first appeared in Showcase number 74, March 1968, cover date by Howard Post. He's a Cro-Magnon boy who lives in the distant past, and not really much more to say there. He has no <laughs> special powers, he's just, you know, caveman times. Uh, Anthro pretty much really only shows up when there's a crisis happening now, you notice that? Yep. <laughs> you, know, you never really got a, a uh, re- revised the first series. boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Anthro rides a mammoth at the head of the pack to steer them away from his father's village. He says, ha, the serpent nose doesn't know what hit him. Come on, big beast. Anthro will lead you away from the village with the bear of the bear people. You and your brother serpent noses. But the mammoth won't turn. It's on a collision course with every member of the village who are all huddled together for easier trampling. <laughs> uh, this includes Anthro's pregnant wife, Embra, and his father, Neon. Anthro's jabbing the mammoth in it with a spear in an attempt to get it to turn. Come on, serpent nose. Do I have to stick my beard down to your toes before you turn? Just before the mammoths are about to run over the crowd of people, the mammoths do turn. The people don't even try to scatter. They, nope. uh, I mean, <laughs> they all, they literally, it's like they were playing mammoth bowling or something, and they were the pins. <laughs> it was a weird game of chicken. I did it. I saved my village. They'll probably hold a celebration in my honor. They'll serve all my favorite foods. What stories I'll tell my son to be. And it will be a son. Ember would have never have a daughter, would she? And if the mammoth knows the answer, mammoth knows the answer. It says nothing. Ember <laughs> uh, cheers for her husband, making him turn around just in time not to see that he's headed straight for a low, low-hanging branch. He gets knocked off the mammoth with a clunk. Anthro thinks he's been attacked by some creature for some reason. <laughs> it was a long beast or a serpent. He hit me when I wasn't looking. Face me now, animal. Anthro is a hero. I'll fight. I'll fight any creature I can see. Anthro peers through the brush to see a city of the future. There, perhaps even the 30th century. We'll find hmm. out. Anthro runs back to his village to tell everyone what he's seen. Embra, father, Lart, all of you, look! Please hurry. It's a village, but bigger than. And the futuristic city has vanished. 
What happened to the village? Who moved it? And, and where, where are the serpent noses? Where indeed? Now we will cut to the 30th century, where five members of the Legion of Superheroes are searching for Dawnstar. Now, the Legion of Superheroes first appeared in Adventure Comics number 247, covered in April 1958 by Otto Binder and Al Plastino, a team of young superheroes and aliens from the 30th century that band together to do good deeds in the name of Superboy. Every member of the Legion of Superheroes has flight rings, so they can all fly. Yeah, makes it nice and easy. So the people we see in this scene are Chameleon Boy. His real name is Reap Daggle. First appeared in Action Comics number 267, August 1960, by Jerry Siegel and Jim Mooney. He's a Durlin from the planet Durla, a race of people that can shapeshift. He's got cute little antennas. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Phantom Girl, first to be in Action Comics 276. It's May 1961 by Jerry Siegel and Jim Mooney. She's from the fourth dimensional planet where everyone can, uh, you know, phase through solid matter. No bigs. No big deal. There's Wildfire. Uh, this is Astro Engineer Drake Burrows, first appeared in Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 195, June 1973, cover date by Carrie Bates and Dave Cockrum. While he was working on a new propulsion system, the unit's safety valve snapped and discharged a blast of antimatter energy, turning him into a conscious antimatter beating, being that must be contained by his suit. And he fires pretty powerful energy blasts out of his hand. Mm-hmm. Lightning Lass, Ayla Ranz, first appeared in Adventure Comics number 308. This is May 1963 by Edmund Hamilton and John Forte. Uh, got her lightning powers after fighting creatures called lightning beasts that inhabited a lightning world. She is the twin sister of fellow legionnaire Garth Lightning Lad. <laughs> and we'll get to him next episode. Yeah. Uh, Colossal Boy, a real name Jim Allen, first appeared in Action Comics number 267. August 1960 cover date. This is the same issue as The Chameleon Boy by Jerry Siegel, and that featured The Chameleon Boy's uh, debut by Jerry Siegel and Jim Mooney. Uh, He was mutated by a radioactive meteorite, gaining the superhuman ability to increase his size, and I mean big. Mm -hmm. He can get gigantic. He had a lot of different names since Crisis and Infinite Earths, but he'll always be colossal, Colossal Boy to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brainiac 5 calls them and uh, says they have to rush back to Legion headquarters right away. Yeah, Brainiac 5 says, Chameleon Boy, Phantom Girl, Wildfire, Lightning Glass, and Colossal Boy, you're all needed immediately. Plaza Square, and let's just pray this is a gag. That's on Street Road, down <laughs> right down the block from Location Place. Yeah, really. This is the 30th century, and they, they named things so innocuous. Plaza Square. Yeah. Uh, Brainiac 5 first appeared in that same issue, along with Colossal Boy and Chameleon Boy. That was Action Comics 267. He's a green-haired, blonde-haired teenage native of the planet Kolu, who claimed to be descended from the original Brainiac. He joined the Legion of Superheroes to atone for his ancestors' misdeeds. At some point, he turns out to be a clone and not a descendant of Brainiac, but the point is he's wicked smart and figures prominently in the Legion, and he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, Plaza Square, turns out, is overrun by some familiar-looking serpent nose, uh, uh, woolly mammoths. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, A couple of guys in a flying car provide some excellent commentary. And we've got Sid going, Holy Christmas! What in blazes are those things? Freddy says, Come on, Shed, you never seen their bones in the museum? They're mammoths, big suckers, too. Just one question. Yeah, Freddy? They died a zillion years ago. How'd they get here? 
<laughs> Some future cops stand ready to blast the mammoths into paste with their laser guns. But Phantom Girl intervenes. Phantom Girl says, no, don't. We'll handle this. Future cop goes, hold your fire, it's the Legion. There's more up there, Ellie, anyway. Uh, lightning lasts and wildfire shoot some reflective, re- respective blast near the mammoths to get their attention, but they get too startled. And lightning lasts goes, they're, they're panicking, they, they need a leader. Wildfire says, hurry, Reap, it's up to you. We'll lose Dawn Star's trail if we take too long. Chameleon Boy turns himself into a mammoth and leads them towards a colossal boy who grows to colossal size. Alright, so you can catch him and keep him as pets, perhaps? Yeah, I don't understand, but uh, <laughs> he says, I haven't stopped too many mammoths in my career, but I think I'm big enough for the job. Wouldn't you agree? They're, they're disappearing. And that they do, just before Colossal Boy can scoop them up. What in blazes is going on here? Where are they? What what happens? First of Dawnstar vanishes, then mammoths appear and vanish too. I don't understand. Call Brainiac 5. Maybe he picked up something. And Brainiac 5 has picked up something. The impending death of the world. Mm, there's anti-matter energy moving toward the Earth from somewhere I still cannot determine. Enough energy to destroy not only us, but the universe. And so we move away from the 30th century to the present, which happens to be late July 1985. Earth One at the stately mansion of millionaire Harold J. Standish III. Actually, the mansion which now belongs to Mr. Standish's heirs. Because the Joker has just killed him. (laughs) And leaves him with the trademark Joker smile. The Joker first appeared in Batman No. 1, April 25th, 1940, by Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Jerry Robinson. Clown-faced Joker is a murderous psychopath that wields a chemical that forces his victims' corpses into a rickish grin. Uh, The Joker is close to the Superpowers toy line era look, so his face sort of looks like a banana. Yeah, which actually really does stem even from the late 70s. But if you're expecting him to look... This, that's what he looks like. He looks like the banana face Joker. Yeah. Uh, Joker monologues about how Standish didn't have to die. He only wanted the copyrights to several black and white comedy films that he owned. <laughs> uh, now that black and white films are being colored, you see, these copyrights are worth a fortune, supposedly. It's, Chris, this is such like a pre-crisis crime right here, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, ah, I must get my hands on the copyrights. Like, yep. who, who ever cared about that? It's a weird thing. Yeah, spend uh, a million dollars on, uh, on equipment to rob a bank and steal a hundred thousand. Exactly, yeah. That, that, <laughs> yeah. That, that's the way we used to do things in comics. Uh, but just then, Batman smashes through the window, never the door. Uh, Batman first appeared, of course, in Detective Comics number 27, May 1939, by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. Having seen his wealthy parents shot dead in front of him as a child, millionaire Bruce Wayne determines to hone himself to physical perfection in order to dress up as a bat and fight crime. Never heard of him. Uh, He says, Only movie you'll ever make, Joker, is the sequel to The Prisoner. And I don't mean that one in the village. Huh? Well, The Prisoner came out in 1955 and was directed by Peter Glenville and starred Alec Guinness and Jack Hawkins. In an unnamed communist country, which is totally East Germany, (laughs) uh, a cardinal arrested for treason is interrogated by a childhood friend. Yeah, I'm not sure what the sequel to that movie would entail. Maybe, like, they reunited a decade later for more interrogation for old time's sake. It's such a weird comment by Batman. 
It is. Uh, the one in that village refers to the UK television show The Prisoner, which had 17 episodes from 1967 to 1968, created by and starring Patrick McGowan. Uh, the series follows a British former secret agent who is abducted and held prisoner in a mysterious coastal village resort, where his captors try to find out why he abruptly resigned from his job. He's repeatedly drugged and made to, made to endure surreal experiences against a psychedelic backdrop, which sounds more like something the Joker might be a part of. Uh, Batman punches the Joker, but from the flower on his lapel, he fires a stream of glue at Batman, incapacitating him. At which point, the Joker pulls out a gun. He says, Gummed up your works, Batman! Getting old, stiff joints, don't fret, friend! I have a forty-five caliber remedy my mom sold to me on her deathbed! It's got a pretty weird mom. Uh, suddenly... <laughs> a statement, too. I was like, <laughs> Suddenly, the Flash shows up through some portal, looking like hell. Uh, there's a Golden Age Flash, but we'll give him his due later on. Uh, this Flash, as we mentioned, first appeared in Showcase Number 4, October 1956, by Robert Kaniger and Carmine Infantino, with a big assist from editor Julius Schwartz. Julius Schwartz. Ugh. Um, Forensic scientist Barry Allen stands before a bookshelf of assorted chemicals when a bolt of lightning streaks into the window, shatters the chemicals, and covers Barry in the soup. This gives him the power of super speed, naturally. Yeah, he says, Help me! Help someone! Anyone! Please! And Batman thinks to himself, The Flash. But he disappeared. And if the helpful caption tells us that this happened in that issue, The Flash 350 that we talked about was really tenuously connected to Crisis. This is where mm. it's connected. Uh, Batman is getting some solvent from his utility belt using his momentary distraction to get the jump on Joker. Even when something like this happens, Batman is still all business. Yeah, he did not forgotten at all what he has to do. Joker says, Flash! No fair, speedster! Your town, Central City! Tell him, Batman! He has no jurisdiction here! Joker gets over himself and fires at the Flash, though we know that that's pointless. Yeah, he's about to unleash some more glue from his lapel flower, though, when the Joker gets whipped in the face by a batarang. That's enough, Joker. You're going back to Arkham where you belong. I still have an ace up my sleeve. Try anything and you won't have an arm there to keep it company. Flash says, Please, can't you see the world? It's, it's dying all around me. Iris! Iris! Batman surmises that the Flash's appearance isn't something the Joker did because he doesn't know about Barry Allen's late wife, I Iris. And he also seemed pretty surprised and scared <laughs> by him. You know, he shot at Barry, too. But, but, but Batman still has in his mind this could all be a hoax by the Joker. This could all be, yes. <laughs> uh, amid the uh, brief confusion, the Joker skedaddles. Uh, Batman stands before the Flash, shocked. He says, where are you, Flash? I can help rescue you. Dying! The world is dying! Iris, dying, may already be dead! Save us! Save us! Save us! While speaking, the Flash seems to crumble into red dust. The Flash disintegrated right before my eyes. See, I told you. <laughs> Dear God, what is happening? And now we see the issue's credits and title page. Very theatrical opening for a comic book, I think. Oh, they put them at the end of the issue? See, we almost know we're still in the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> now, back on the monitor satellite, all the assembled heroes stand in a convenient row. You know, so they could be named with convenient captions over their heads. Yeah. Uh, now, this is, the, this is their first time formally meeting the monitor. Yeah, Dr. Polaris is the only one to speak in that panel. He says, 
You've supplied weapons to the other supervillains. The monitor feels like they have bigger fish to fry in this situation. I am the monitor, and I have summoned you here because your universes are about to die. Already more than 1,000 universes have perished. The last contained the world you know as Earth-3. Now the antimatter force once more shatters the dimensional barriers, expanding outward, engulfing one universe and then another, destroying all life and hope. First, your worlds will feel nature's wrath as your planets cry out in agony. Worlds in upheaval, earthquakes, volcanic disturbances, floods which will crush, it will crush your coastline like so many twigs beneath your feet. Then shall come the nothingness, silent, invisible, sweeping across your worlds, taking with it everything. Firestorm with Killer Frost draped on him is more concerned with those weapon sales Dr. Plyer has talked about. He says, hold it, pal. Like Antler had said, I've heard of you, too. You've been selling the bad guys' weapons and stuff for the past year or so. What gifts? I have come here to help save your worlds, not to fight you. Please, I am tired, but I'll try to explain it all. To which Poseidon says, You'll explain nothing, Monitor. You turned down my request for weapons. You listened and refused my needs. I swore then I would destroy you. Now Poseidon will... And he shoots a pink telepathic beam from his weird head, but the Monitor deflects it with some kind of force field. We'll do nothing. I turned you down because your scheme would have endangered the very ones I need. Geoforce grabs Simon and forces him to stop. I mean, what if the Monitor's right about all this after all? Indeed, Harbinger has a private conversation with the Monitor, right in front of everybody. Yeah, sure. But, they, but, they're, but they're whispering. That's right, they're keeping their voices low, so it's fine. Yeah. I mean, you gotta imagine this, too. Like, all these people have been teleported, they don't know what they're doing there, why, and it's just like, we're just gonna have an aside over here. And they're just standing in a row, right. all calm. <laughs> uh, Harbinger whispers, says, Monitor, are you all right? I've never seen you so weak before. My foe's strength grows and I become weaker, but I will live, Lila. Still, I need the powers of Harbinger beside me. I fear these earthlings may become too difficult to control. I will stand by your side. Then she thinks to herself, yet why do I feel as I do? A force, an energy, turning inside me, and why I feel hate toward the one who saved my life. Why? At that same time, Superman of Earth 2 rallies the troops. If he's telling the truth, we'll save our worlds. If he's lying, no power exists that can defeat us all. And I mean, that's sort of the point that Monitor is trying to make Superman. Yeah. Now is a power that can defeat you all. That's why you're here. <laughs> Understand that I am linked with all positive matter. It flows through me, gives me power. But as the antimatter destroys more and more, I weaken. Soon, if you fail, I will be helpless to prevent my foe from destroying all that exists. No pressure, though. You know, just no, do the best no. you can. Uh, these assembled heroes and villains are still skeptical. I have tested all of you and more, pitted you one against the other to fully catalog your abilities. You are my initial force. Others will be summoned as their abilities are required. I don't know, man. It really seems like he's playing this by ear, if you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, everyone still debates the veracity of the monitor's claims. <laughs> but Harbinger's had enough of this bickering. It's time to pick a side. 
In five crucial eras throughout time, the Monitor has planted certain devices powerful enough to halt the antimatter tide. Five eras which coincide with the existence of heroes such as you, for the presence of such heroes creates its own focal point. All right. You must protect them from our enemies. You must engage them on our command. Uh, Arian senses a darkness within Harbinger, probably because she almost killed him before whisking about the SS Monitor. Could be. Yeah. Uh, Superman of Earth 2, naturally speaking for everyone, says that they will lend a hand. Harbinger sends five teams to these important focal points in time. One moment they are there, within the confines of a satellite that seemingly exists in all times, places, and dimensions. Then they are gone, scattered across a great wide cosmos. Harbinger helps the monitor take his afternoon nap, all the while crying over being controlled by his nemesis. She thinks to herself, I, I am unable to resist him, and yet I am forced to obey his commands. Forgive me, though you have been my father and more, I now betray you. Just what more are we talking about here? All right, never mind. Let's not push that. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the planet Oa, the Guardians murmur about having discovered that the universe is being destroyed by antimatter. Man, antimatter. Blah, blah, blah. Whoops. I almost gave it away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Guardians of the Universe first appeared in Green Lantern number one. This is July 1960 by John Broom and Gil Kane. They're like the bosses of the Green Lantern Corps. They're little blue and immortal. Uh, they're also designed to look like DC editor Julia Schwartz. Mm -hmm. uh, they live on the planet Oa, at the center of the universe, and there is the power battery, the source of the Green Lantern's ring energy. Yeah, so the Green the Guardians are discussing the impending threat discreetly when the lantern that is the source of all Green Lantern power appears to speak to them directly. Yes, the voice from the lantern goes, No, Guardians, it is too late. You shall no more summon your soldiers than prove a threat to my plans. What began with you so many centuries ago ends with you now. And then the giant lantern lets out some green energy and makes a scraw sound, which appears to knock the Guardians out cold. Over to Metropolis on Earth-1, Superman is rushing to a meeting atop the Daily Planet building, arranged by Batman. Uh, we know this guy, Superman. He first appeared in Action Comics number 1, June 1938, by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Rocketed from the dying planet Krypton, Kal-El, this version with an E in the name, landed on Earth and was raised by Kansas farmers John and Martha Kent. He's got super strength, he can fly, uses x-ray and heat vision, and... A dozen other powers that don't leap immediately to mind. Telescopic vision. Right. And as Clark Kent, he... Uh, super hearing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, as Clark Kent, he works as a... Uh, super speed. Right. He's got he's got everything, Chris. Uh, uh. As Clark Kent, he works at uh, as a reporter for the Daily Planet, where he moons at fellow reporter Lois Lane and hangs out with Archie Andrews Ripoff and newspaper photographer Jimmy Olsen. Super well, breath. Super that's breath. right. You got it. <laughs> Uh, Lois Lane, incidentally, also debuted in Action Comics number one. Uh, Jimmy Olsen is an unnamed office boy with a bow tie in Action Comics number six. That was November 1938 cover date. But he gets a name and more FaceTime starting in Superman number 13, the November-December 1941 cover date. 
Yeah, Superman thinks to himself, Batman said it was urgent, and he's certainly not one to exaggerate. But there was fear in his voice, something I've definitely not heard before. Well, I'm sure the two of us can handle whatever it is. If the answer is to be overconfident, then you'll be just fine. Absolutely. Batman goes, Superman, there's trouble, and it concerns the Flash. Batman explains what he just saw with the Joker back in Standish Manor, and right then, Pariah appears. He says, Praise heaven! Help at last! Who are you? I... I am called Pariah. I need you, both of you. Your legends reached my world long before my exile. It's your world and your universe. Your Earth is dying, as have the other Earths before... No! No, I'm being called away. I... I cannot resist. Help! And Pariah fades away in a flash of light. Yeah, Superman goes, he's gone? Just like that? He said the Earth was dying. That's what Flash said. What's going on here? I wish the Batman had said he wasn't gone soon enough. Sheesh. <laughs> uh, let's skip on over to that great disaster that we saw that mm. seat on the cover. There's a huge yellow tower encrusted with mechanical parts looming uh, in the foreground. And the Statue of Liberty is kind of faintly seen behind it, showing you that we are on a future Earth here. Yes. Uh, this tower isn't... Oh, sorry. This tower isn't usually a part of the world of the Great Disaster. It's it's new. That's right. The caption tells us it is sometime in some future in a timeline that a time stands between modern Earth and the 30th century, which knows nothing of its existence. The world has been changed. Humans are hunted species and animals, now intelligent and deadly, are their hunters. In this world of madness lives Kamandi, known to many as the last boy on Earth. And uh, Kamandi is uh, scaling that giant column. He thinks to himself, I've recently ridden over this area a dozen times, and whatever this is, it sure wasn't there before. Wonder what it's supposed to do. Uh, this fellow first appeared in Kamandi, The Last Boy on Earth, number one, October 1972, by Jack Kirby. He's a young hero in a post-apocalyptic future turned tribal by The Great Disaster, which is implied to be a nuclear holocaust. Uh, this world has lots of anthropomorphic animals that talk. It's great. I love mm-hmm. it. Uh, Kamandi uh, climbs up a vine uh, up the side of the tower, wondering about its technology. Then a shadow being emerges from the side of the tower and cuts Kamandi's vine. And so he's falling to his death. That is, until Superman of Earth 2 shows up. Uh-oh! Lost my grip! I'm done for! Not quite, lad. You're safe in my hands. Superman! Ah, he must be remembering Kamandi, the last boy on Earth, number 29, from May 1975, when Kamandi and his pal meet a bunch of smart apes that worship a uh, leftover Superman costume and legacy. That's right. You looked at that on your blog, Chris. I did. Earth.com, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, Dawnstar says, uh, was, this wasn't you? No, I was li- I was yeah, lightning no, no, last. Sorry, yeah, all right. yeah, I'll go. I'll start over one more second. Dawnstar says, "This is obviously the Monitor's machine." Superman, I don't see the Shadow Beast. And Solafar goes, "Boy, when did it appear? Is there more than one?" Commandy says, "A gorilla." You've got to be one of Sar Simeon's hired killers. Happily, boy. I'm no such thing. I gotta ask, why does Kamandi even bring this up? I mean, of everything he saw today, an English-speaking gorilla in a red cape would be like, that's like everyday stuff, right? It, it right? Is world. On his world, sure. 
<laughs> now, before everyone could talk each other to death, shadow people began coursing out of the tower. Dorsar says, The shadow thing is back, this time with friends, but it doesn't seem as strong here as it did on the Monitor's ship. You guys think about it? How did the shadows get here? And unless I'm completely mistaken, their silhouette was the same as the Monitor's own. Hmm. Dawnstar th- does, a, does a hammer throw into the shadow monster's gut while making these observations, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it was a long trip. Uh, Superman of Earth 2 agrees with Dawnstar, but he's still at a loss to explain these things. Though he can burn up a shadow folk pretty quick with his heat vision. Mm-hmm. A shadow fella touches Kamandi on his exposed shoulder, causing some pain. My shoulder! This thing just touched it and my shoulder burns! Someone help get it off me! Solovar bounds in from nowhere and plants a dropkick on the Shadow Fiend. No problem, boy. Pleased to be of service. (laughs) (laughs) The Shadow Gang flees uh, the area nearly as quickly as they emerged. And the Superman of Earth 2 says, Like the last time, the Shadows attack and flee. Dornstar replies, But this time, they're not disappearing. I can track them no matter where they hide, from anywhere on Earth to the Dark Nebulae themselves. No, girl. Let them go. We were brought here to protect this machine, not to leave it alone for a second attack. I know, but it is frustrating to simply wait here. I agree, yet somehow I feel the shadow demons are nearly a prelude to some greater disaster. Will someone tell me what's going on here? Harbinger stands nearby the scene, watches, and laughs. That's right, she thinks to herself. Let them protect the machine. It will serve those fools no good. Their efforts will be rewarded with death. Why you gotta be like that? Uh, Harbinger zips back to the satellite to check in on Alexander Luther II, uh, Jr., even. Uh, though it's only been hours since uh, he was nabbed as a baby on Earth-3, he's already grown into a young child. Probably around uh, nine or ten years right. old at this I point. I think so. I mean, it's hard to tell, but... Uh, over in ancient Atlantis, Orion, Obsidian, and Psycho Pirate have been dispatched to protect another tower. Yes, Obsidian goes, This is Atlantis. Wow, I've heard of it. Seen it in the movies, but nothing could prepare me for what it really looks like. Psycho Pirate says, And it houses so many people, too, with so many emotions. You feel that, my friends? This is glorious. Simply glorious. Arion goes, use your emotion-controlling powers on them once, Psycho Pirate, and my punishment will be swift. Come now, there is work that must be done. Oh, oh, of course, of course, dear Lord Arion. I would never spread my madness here. And thinks to himself, at least not for you to know, stupid oaf. I'm sure he's going to pull a fast one. Uh, <laughs> the, the subjects of Atlantis emerge to greet Arion, and Obsidian notices that Psycho Pirate is shuffled off to somewhere. Uh, Psycho Pirate is nearby in some meadow, sitting on a rock. He realizes that his emotional needs have grown more complicated. He thinks to himself, They won't let me feed on the emotions. It's no longer enough to change emotions, is it? No, I've got to... I'm picking up terror. Oh, good, sweet, manipulable fear! My kind of dread! And as such, our old crying pal Pariah has popped into place. He demands to know where he is, and Psycho Pirate tells him. Pariah says, Atlantis! Earth-1, then! 
of 40,000 years before my last appearance. No sadness or worry around me, my friend. Not when I need your feelings more than you do. And so Psycho Pirate manipulates his Medusa mask and forces Pariah into hysterical laughter. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. Stop it. Uh, Psycho Pirate's fun is ruined by some kind of energy blast. Yes, Arion goes, demented fool, that is enough. What? Who dares to... Oh, it's you. Mistake, friends. Real mistake. You see, absorbing purple hair's emotions increased my strength. What you fools need is a healthy dose of terror. Fight me if you can, but you may as well resist the terror of your own emotions. Arion and the Atlanteans are thrown into fear despite Arion's magical attempt to protect them. Obsidian has a better plan. Arion, quickly come to me. Psycho Pirate, Pirate's power affect you because you can see his facial changes. But in my shadow form, I can protect you. Obsidian envelops Orion, plunging him into a deep darkness, and that seems to do the trick. Arion goes, oh, 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 the madness fades. I thank you, Obsidian. Psycho Pirate knows that Arion can protect everyone in Atlantis from going batty, and he's prepared to give them a larger dose. When a big red beam zaps down and teleports Psycho Pirate away, this understandably confuses everybody in attendance. Mm-hmm. Psycho Pirate ended up in a dark, mysterious location where a disembodied voice speaks to him. It booms out, Psycho Pirate, I need you. Your voice, it's like ice. But I don't need you, and I don't even want you. Show me your face, and I'll teach you the meaning of terror. Fool, you would want a face without one of your own. Suddenly and mysteriously, Psycho Pirate's face disappears. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Yeah. You want to scream, don't you? Well, fool, you cannot. Not without a mouth. And you will die without an outlet for your emotions. If you wish to live, let me know. But to live, you must serve me as I demand. Your answer, now. Oh, Lord, yes. I'll do anything, but please don't ever do that again. Without a way of expressing them, my emotions sealed inside me would have destroyed me. Yeah, you could always turn to poetry, right? That's what I used to do. Sure. Uh, on the Monitor satellite, they lament the loss of Psycho Pirate. The Monitor needed him for his emotional powers, don't you know? Yeah, and Harbinger says, Then what of the empath called Raven? I can find no trace of her. If she is on this earth, everything about her has been changed. Now, Raven, of course, is a member of the new Teen Titans who first appeared in that same insert in DC Comics Presents number 26, where we first met Cyborg. She's an empath and can calm and heal people with her powers. She's also the daughter of Trigon the Terrible, and destroying the world is, you know, her birthright. At this time, uh, Raven had recently died killing her father in New Teen Titans Volume 2, number 5. That's the Baxter edition in February 1985, and was replaced on the team by Lilith Clay, who has super mind powers. But she will have her crisis moment later. Yeah, we will give her a description when we get to it. Sure. Uh, seems the Monitor will require the aid of a brand new hero, or a new hero in an old character's costume, really. <laughs> Lila, my dear, get me the file on the new Dr. Light. It's time for me to create her. Uh, back in Atlantis, Pariah is introducing himself. Ibsenine goes, he is not from Atlantis, then. No, no, not from this Earth. But another, 
the first that fell when this insanity began. But long after I was cursed for an evil act I had committed, deed I have paid for a thousand times over, and must suffer still a thousand times more. I witnessed tragedy, and my being here means disaster is soon to strike. Then an Atlantean notices that there's antimatter in the sky. I am sorry, but it begins anew. The antimatter will sweep throughout the universe in a matter of hours from now. Your Earth will die. Then the monitor lied. He lied. Uh, on the satellite, plans are proceeding, but they seem to be behind schedule. My foes move faster than I anticipated, while I feel the weakness spreading all too quickly. Then Harbinger is called away by her evil master. Well, for a private status report. Hey, he just wants an update, that's all. Yeah. Harbinger says, The Monitor has implemented his plans. Although not all his warriors are in place, most stand ready. And her evil master bellows, The Monitor will fall! As he has always failed to stop me, I steal his strength and mine grows stronger. His champions are doomed as I pit one against each other. Now go, there is work to be done. Uh, Harbinger gets zapped back to the Monitor satellite. And we will pick up the next part, issue three of the story, next week. Mm-hmm. In the back of the issue, Marv Wolfman wrote, Writers like to complicate matters, and what began as a dream of a story, Flash of Two Worlds, had turned into a nightmare. DC continuity was so confusing, no new reader could easily understand it, while older readers had to keep miles-long lists to set things straight. And the writers... Well, we were always stumbling over each other trying to figure out simple answers to difficult questions. For the past several years, many people have suggested fixing up the DC Universe, simplifying it, making making it consistent, yet in a way that would not prevent experiments that varied with established future. Other writers and artists have often mentioned how they wished the morass of continuity could be repaired. Well, Christ's Son Infinite Earths will attempt to do such a repair job. By series end, DC will have a consistent and more easily understandable universe to play with. We're pulling out all the stops to make Crisis on Infinite Earths an epic you will never forget. And we certainly won't, not with the work we've done on it, Chris. But of course, (laughs) there are some uh, crossover issues to this issue number two. We're going to go through them here. It was Green Lantern number 194, November 1985, cover date by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten. Uh, after a requisite fight, Harbinger recruits John Stewart to the Monitor's complex and secret plan. Katmatui tells the Guardians about the impending crisis, and they take the threat seriously. Hal Jordan, having retired, and John Stewart off with Harbinger's crew, Guy Gardner has taken off reserve status and made the official Green Lantern of planet Earth, and we will give their bios later of all these people. Yes. <laughs> and he will make a mess of things. Right. Uh, Infinity Inc., number 19 and 20. Uh, this is October 1985 by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Todd McFarlane. Commander Steele, Henry Haywood, is transported to Earth-1 in All-Star Squadron 50, emerges decades later. He activates a long-dormant mechanique and uses her augmented power to travel to Earth-2 and mess with the kids in Infinity, Inc. And mechanique is going to be a weird, weird character. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's, <laughs> I believe we get into that more in the next issue, but that's yeah. the next episode, sorry. Uh, Justice League of America, number 244, that was November 1985, by Jerry Conway and Joe Staten. Uh, manipulated by Mechanique via Commander Steel, Infinity Inc. travels to Earth-1 to battle the Justice League. 
Steel is able to take advantage of, of Infinity Inc.'s unfamiliarity with this newly formed Justice League, which was the Justice League Detroit. Eventually, Mechanique turns the tables on Commander Steel, who reveals that he created his grandson's Steel identity because of some PTSD freakout. Steel takes out his grandpa, Commander Steel, as the skies over Earth 1 and Earth 2 turn ominously red. Mm -hmm. uh, Batman 389, 390, and 391, uh, November through December 1985 and January 1986, by Doug mentioned Tom Mandrake. Also, Detective Comics 556, 557, 558, same cover dates by Doug mentioned Gene Colan. Right. Uh, these issues comprise a, con a continuous six-issue story, beginning with Batman 389, then to Detective 556, then 390, Batman 390, and so on. Right. Nocturna comes to Gotham City's observatory to find out what's causing these red skies and powerful storms. She also reveals that she's Robin, this is Jason Todd. He, she reveals that she's his mother. Mm -hmm. A point which will, uh, you know, it's not a very long-lasting uh, no. revelation. It will change very shortly. Change and change drastically. And then lastly, in Vigilante uh, 22, that's October 1985 cover date by Paul Kupperberg and Todd Smith. In this issue, the skies are red and stormy, which apparently is, very enough, important. is enough to be a crisis <laughs> crossover. If the skies are red, you made the, you made the cut. Uh, I find that interesting too because you know Vigilante is a Marv Wolfman creation. Creation, yep. Uh, even though Kupperberg is writing him here, I assume Wolfman could have folded him in much more, but he didn't, and that's okay. And I think it's okay if we put a pin in it here, one sixth of the way through Crisis at Infinite Earths. <laughs> and uh, we've already said a mouthful, folks, and probably have screwed up a lot of stuff or have, you know, caused. A lot of people to make comments about their experiences with the series. And of mm -hmm. course, as always, we want to hear them. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on facebook.com slash cosmic t-mill history. We're on Twitter at cosmic t-mill. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can find our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com, where we review comics and such. And... You have Chris's personal blog is at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where he does a new DC comic every day of the week, and uh, I believe he did Crisis 7 not long I ago. I did. So uh, if you don't mind skipping ahead uh, from the series <laughs> and maybe doing a little uh, advanced reading, you can check that out. Or, you know, if you want to go pick up the Crisis, uh, you know, trade or the 12 issues are out Digital, there. yep. How do, those, how do those issues sell in the back bins, do you know? I've it's I found a seven and eight which is uh, well I don't want to ruin what happens in seven or eight but they are milestone issues right. I found those for three dollars each. All right, that's not bad. So it's not bad. Good condition. I I definitely see them in really beat up condition for like oh they're all over the place. Whatever beat up. Less, yeah. but, uh, that's pretty good. Also, I don't have the it to hand, but uh, we do have a new blogger account, right? Would that be weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com? That's right. Uh, so um, don't know how. Often this thing is going yeah. to use, but we are going to use it here. Uh, Chris diligently went through and got pictures of all of the monitor appearances, the specific panels yep. in question for all the ones that we went through. So if you want to go check them out and go to that site, and that'll be in the show notes also for you to check mm -hmm. out. But boy, I think that's all we got for him right now, Chris. You got anything else for him? I don't think I do. <laughs> yeah, I think there's not much more we could really say here. So, until uh, next time, next week. Oh, we... oh wait, wait, let's, uh, let's thank people for supporting us on our 50th oh, episode. Right. That's, yes. This is an important episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in a way we thought we'd get here, but we didn't. You know, you never think about it. 
sure. uh, that you're gonna you're gonna be able to crank out so many on a weekly basis and go through so many comics and so many types of comics and mm -hmm. definitely has expanded my comics knowledge you know uh oh 100 between the two of us chris you know i i see us i see myself as having a broader overview look at comics whereas you are in the trenches all right you, know what <laughs> I mean? you you are you are living and breathing with the, the characters whereas i'm kind of looking at them i, I look broader. monitoring and we both yeah exactly i, I am the monitor <laughs> of them i i don't know i don't mean to say this like we are you know oil and water we both have this crossover between us you know chris also is a huge uh, scholar of, of comics history and i love my <laughs> specific issues of comics as well but you know uh together we've put something uh, i really am proud of here and i really am Absolutely. glad that people respond to it uh you know our guiding principle is to put out a podcast that we would want to listen to and so far that's uh served us pretty well and, and i don't see us stopping for the any time in the foreseeable future nope and uh you, you want to uh Throw out any names, any people, or thank, thank your mother and father or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank the academy. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always, I'm always trepidatious about naming names because I'm always afraid I'm going to leave someone out right. because I, I, it's why I don't do those, uh, those follow Friday Twitter things because I'm always afraid I'm going to leave somebody out. Yeah. And. And as somebody who's been left out on a couple of times, I know that that can hurt feelings. So, <laughs> but we definitely have, uh, you know, there are people really who have been so supportive and Sorry. so gracious, and uh, can't, you know, we hope you know who you are. We really appreciate yes. you, and everyone listening to the show, we really appreciate uh, you writing into us, letting us know how you like it and stuff, and the stories that you tell. Chris and I can't get enough of those, you know. Like, Certainly. you know, I remember, I remember buying this book. Uh, you know, I just broke my leg, and I needed to buy a <laughs> bunch of comics or whatever. So, uh, yeah, keep that coming, and you know, just can't thank people enough for enjoying this uh, cosmic treadmill trip through comics history, as it were. You know. Mm -hmm. So I guess if that's all we got for him, now that we got a little saccharine, sappy sweet on him, <laughs> uh, until next Sunday, I'd like everyone to please. Keep it on the treadmill crisis-tastically. <laughs> See ya. That's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not a...